This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Afterlives of Data, Life and Debt Under Capitalist Surveillance by Mary F.E. Ebeling. Afterlives of Data follows the curious and multiple lives that our data live once they escape us. Mary F.E. Ebeling's ethnographic investigation shows how information about our health and the debt we carry become biopolitical assets owned by healthcare providers, insurers, commercial data brokers, credit reporting companies, and platforms. By delving into the oceans of data built from everyday medical and debt traumas, Ebeling reveals how data about our lives come to control our bodies and our life chances and to wholly define us. In this book, Ebeling traces the health data, medical information extracted from patients' bodies, that is digitized and repackaged into new data commodities that have afterlives in database lakes and oceans, algorithms, and statistical models used to score patients on their creditworthiness and riskiness. Critical and disturbing, Afterlives of Data examines how Americans' data about their health and their debt are used in the service of marketing and capitalist surveillance. Afterlives of Data, Life and Debt Under Capitalist Surveillance, by Mary F.E. Ebeling. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. I don't have much to say by way of introduction because this interview with Patrick Blanchfield is just exhaustive. The long history and present of American gun violence, including in comparative settler colonial perspective, followed by his analysis of an American death drive that increasingly seems to underpin it all. One of the best dig episodes yet, I think. Before we get started, this podcast appears to you in mystified form as content. In reality, a lot of work goes into every episode, work that I and a bunch of other people do to make the dig every week. And we have a lot more coming soon, including starting in a few months, a recurring narrative, commie, this American life type thing, similar to the antibody series we put out in 2020 called The Dig Presents. Each of those episodes will cost a lot of money to make. And it's totally worth it. We're really pleased to be able to provide so many talented audio producers with a place to do engaging and creative radical audio work that wouldn't be aired anywhere aside from here on The Dig. And if you like the fact that we put all these additional financial resources into making cool new programming, please support The Dig at patreon.com slash the dig. A contribution of any size at all gets you a copy of our excellent weekly newsletter by email. A contribution of $10 or more a month gets you a book or books in the mail, a dig tote bag, or a dig mug. You can check out every edition of the newsletter for free at thedigradio.com. And I've posted a link in the show notes to the most recent newsletter, an analysis of the deep progressive roots of the New Democrats' conceptualization of the deserving poor, written by Maya Silber. It's really good. It's in the show notes. But for just, say, $5 a month, we will deliver that newsletter straight to your email inbox. So please do contribute if you can. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. 
If you already do support The Dig at Patreon and are not receiving the newsletter by email, please email us at digradiopod at gmail.com, digradiopod at gmail.com, and we will get that sorted. Okay, here's Patrick Blanchfield, a journalist, critic, and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His book, Gunpower, The Structure of American Violence, is forthcoming from Verso. And very briefly, Ben Maybe is now joining Thea Riofrancos as a DIG senior advisor. I first met Ben and came to greatly admire his intelligence when he edited my book, All American Nativism. And he has for a long time provided me with great ideas for this podcast. Recently, he has been helping me craft questions and think through complicated topics. He is really such a brilliant guy, and I'm very thankful to have him helping out. Patrick Blanchfield, welcome back to The Dig. It's a pleasure to, to be here, uh, given the circumstances. Pleasure sounds weird, but I have been looking forward to this for weeks now, so thank you for having me. These recent mass shootings have punctuated this generalized panic over crime that has been fomented and weaponized by Republicans with, of course, the eager acquiescence of centrist Democrats who never miss an opportunity to declare just how much they support funding, not defunding the police. And it's true, there has been a major uptick in Americans killing other Americans since the, since the pandemic. But it's diluted to think that that has anything to do with the police having been defunded, because unfortunately, that did not happen. What's more, really no other sorts of crime are on the rise, except for murders and other sorts of violent attacks. What accounts for this surge in violence and what accounts for it then being mystified in political discourse as the consequence of a non-existent reduction in funding for state violence workers. There are a bunch of ways to unpack this like fundamental question of our moment, right? And and some of them are more glib but than others, but that glibness is also not necessarily reductive, right? There is some way in which there's a, a comic or, or tragic or tragic comic way in which like the Democrats are caught in this kind of folia de this sort of like perverse dialectic with republicans where they're like don't worry we're going to be tough on crime too we're going to we support the police even more than than you do etc as though the people who you know they're trying to convince are somehow going to not give that preference to the republicans not attribute that toughness to the republicans and it, it it sounds like one of those old jokes about like the the masochists and, and having found the perfect partner and a sadist and then together they they just make each other worse while meanwhile the rest of the world goes to shit. But I do think we can take a step back from the empirics of crime uh, or even like the exceptional fact of high profile mass shootings, right, as opposed to other types of quotidian violence. And we can look at sort of a what do you might call like the libidinal economy of of the U.S. in this contemporary moment, like these sort of interesting configurations of fear and anxiety and blame making and these constant shifts of position and projection which ultimately boil down to just sort of the production of a status quo that changes only insofar as it gets more brutal and cruel as i i said in a recent episode that it it seems like all this violence the mass and non-mass shootings that it's all part and parcel of a larger American infrastructure and culture of armed violence that 
is not curtailed by police, pretty obviously, but rather extends from the police, military, and border patrol through the gun shows selling AR-15s, the weapons companies with their stocks that rise after every mass shooting, and Republican campaign ads that feature candidates locked and loaded, ready to open fire against a coming woke apocalypse of open borders and child groomers. What do you see to be this relationship between the long history, very much continuing through the present, of official state violence and the increasingly terroristic forms of civilian violence that we're seeing? As a thought exercise that sort of underwrites my, my work and my book and my perspective, I, I would I think it's helpful to think about like the deep history of settler colonization in North America and the multiple iterations of settlement and legitimacy and the development of various institutions in a way that is no that, that isn't that doesn't involve any type of commitment to these terms of like the state, right, or or the uh, or the private sector versus the public sector, right, and, and I know that sounds very abstract, but I think that like if you uh, delink a lot of the conversational circuits that we generally follow when it comes to gun talk, and 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 uh, you step away from debating, I don't know, like uh, the right to bear arms or court determinations about self defense, and instead just sort of look at the the material political economy of guns in North America from before the U.S. was the U.S. up and through until its present state, certain things become clearer, right? Certain patterns of uh, political economy and the distribution of arms, the manufacture of arms, the use of arms as a way to uh, form alliances between competing groups, but also the way in which the distribution of arms is intimately tied to negotiations of race uh, and to sort of jockeying for hierarchical positions within various longstanding and new antagonisms. And I think at that point, in which we see ourselves trying to explain or at least to look at institutions like I don't know, like the Republic of Texas alongside the CSA, alongside the United States, a federal entity, alongside various other social experiments and entities like for, I don't know, like breakaway Mormon settlers or um, or the rest. You can you get a sense of commonalities in the way that just this continent was flooded with guns and proceeded to manufacture ever more guns and distribute the prerogative to use guns in a kind of paradoxical inclusion-exclusion logic of, of universal access combined with a sort of universal fact that life is cheap, such that the circumstances that we have now, uh, where you know we're the leading producer of small arms on the planet, we're the leading exporter of small arms on the planet, as well as other arms, uh, we are... Uh, imperial hegemon, but also a settler colonial state, becomes much more uh, a matter of degree and intensity rather than a difference in kind from that kind of originary brew where questions of legitimacy, authority, or even sovereignty are sort of always post facto explanations or terms that are put on conflicts after, well, Someone has so someone after victory has been declared and bodies have been cleared, right? You can almost like visualize this in some ways, encapsulated by the paradox of the rhetoric of like stand your ground, right? And, and as, as, many, as wonderful authors, including Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz and others, have noted, like 
what does it mean to invoke the principle of like standing your ground in a country where the territory itself is like stolen, right? And, and I think if you have that kind of if you're willing to tolerate thinking about contemporary U.S. politics against the backdrop of a more broadly uncanny and estranged history uh, in which like the given terms of periodization and of political institutions are secondary to these sort of deeper structures, you can gain a lot of clarity. I mean, this is the very basic history of westward expansion that made the United States the very continent striding empire that we now that we now take for granted as the country that we live in. But is all of this gun ownership and violence, is it all specifically an American phenomenon? You've you've written and we're just referring to the this fulcrum of American settler colonialism where violence is or at least appears omnidirectional, where the outer reaches of a frontier state are extended by these self-deputized individuals, mostly men, who are tasked with defending themselves and their property in the absence of a strong state. But do we see this sort of violence in other Anglo-settler colonies, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, or in former British settler colonies in Africa, say, like Rhodesia? There, there are, without a doubt, more guns in this country than any other, and a certain violence follows from that. But but does America really stand alone? So I am truly grateful to you for asking that question and encouraging me and, and, and our listeners to think about things in a comparative term, because there is some way in which an easy discourse of U.S. exceptionalism obscures some striking commonalities, right? And this is one of these things that I find myself uh, disambiguating very frequently with uh, European journalists and European scholars when I talk to them, and who oftentimes want uh, a single monocausal explanation for why the U.S. is the way it is, right? You know, like, is it about arms manufacturers in the 20th century? Is it about the frontier, by which they generally mean the Old West? Is it about the Civil War and slavery, etc.? In fact, it's all these things layered on top of one another. And I think once you can view the situation that we have in the present as a complex output of, like, cumulative developments stacked over time and competing with one another or producing certain types of synchronicity, you get a lot more clarity. And that is a crucial part of that also involves looking at cases outside the US, right? So to answer the question more granularly, it's worth noting here, uh, for example, and this is, this is again, when my book eventually hits the press, people are welcome to, to get more granular into this. I don't want to nerd out too much so, but like the history of European colonizers, whether they be and trades like trade ventures, right, under a, operating in a corporate model, whether they be um, Dutch or British or French or Spanish, there's some variations between how they approach settlement in in, in North America. These are models that uh, have different but still through-line relationships to the idea of individuals being able to bear arms or deploy weapons as a participation in a in enterprises that we could call corporate. Again, there are historical differences between the way, say, like the French approached the parts of North America that would later become French Canada and the way in which like the Spanish and the Portuguese would divvy up colonial spaces as part of like a logic of royalty, et cetera. We, we don't need to get too far into that. But like, just to put this out there from the get-go, it's striking that, for example, the first 
English precedent, or rather British precedent, for a right to bear arms in North America is not in the Constitution or its amendments, and is not even really in British law, but in the corporate guidelines of the Massachusetts Bay Company, right? Uh, Puritan settlers have a right and even an obligation stipulated under corporate contract to be armed, to protect themselves, and to protect uh, the broader enterprise of trade, developing territory, etc., right? The right to bear arms in this sense is understood as a corporate, as a feature of a corporate enterprise. So let's just put that out there right for the beginning for something that's decidedly under-acknowledged or under-thought. And in some ways, if you can find the, the text of this, it's eerily recommended of what later is inscribed in the Second Amendment. If we bracket our commitments to understanding issues of sovereignty or like what Max Weber would call the state's monopoly on legitimate violence, to think about options for uh, ratifying violence by non-state or parastate actors or delegates of the state in the transatlantic context of the basically the 16th century onwards, you arrive at all these interesting formations like letters of mark for pirates, right? You uh, were, were, were armed essentially like freebooters, right? Filibusters, if you want to use the Dutch term, are given a, a specific contract that allows them in a sort of extension of the king's sovereign right to kill and let die, etc., to fly the flag, use cannons and guns, board other ships, etc., steal, plunder, loot, whatever, but to do so as a sort of extension of a prerogative that would otherwise be grounded or extended over the coastal waters of the European metropolitan question, right? And there's some interesting conceptual articulations of this that emerge during this period. For example, like there's a lot of talk of like the idea of a hydrarchy, right? Like like the hydra, the many-headed beast. And there's all this stuff about how the these pirates form a hydrarchy and that they have this distributed sort of sovereignty, but also once they go criminal and they cross over into illegitimate behavior, they start raiding British ships, then how do you stop them, right? But so already we have this kind of interesting act of delegation, right? Um, and a, a sort of a functional relationship to legitimacy. Another thing I'd say, though, too, and this is an interesting thing, is to think about the arms trade in a, in the 17th century as an, in a thoroughly transatlantic context, right? Uh, and this goes, this has a bunch of uh, ramifications. The first is, is that in the context of what various historians will call like a a revolution or a military revolution in the development of the fiscal military state in Europe, there's this kind of bootstrapping process by which uh, state centralization coexists and is fueled by industri- early industrial or proto-industrial uh, centralization of the ability to manufacture arms and trade them. Right, so as these militaries of uh, of nations centralize, uh, so too do their arms industries. Another point to bear in mind here, and this goes against the grain of a lot of common wisdom, but it's something that you have to be able to tolerate thinking about, kind of counterfactually or against the grain of what might seem to be common sense wisdom, is that in fact. Even while uh, colonizers in North America specifically had all sorts of rules about not allowing uh, indigenous people and let alone slaves to have access 
to weapons and specifically to the technology for making bullets, etc., making their own guns, there that coexisted with widespread black market and even wider spread dissemination of weapons as tools of cultivating trade, partnership, and alliances with local groups for for doing everything from uh, raiding other groups for slaves to ensuring uh, trade of furs or other natural resources, right? And in that sense, the the cross-Atlantic perspective is absolutely vital insofar as that during the – from the 16th to 17th century and onward, a lot of the ways in which the British specifically flooded North America with guns for indigenous people to use, like and, and the French did as well, this incredibly well-traveled weapons, which would travel across the continent as far as the far west, right, via indigenous trade, uh, indigenous trade networks, they also did much the same on the other side of Atlantic in Western Africa, right? It, that this idea of trading, of, of giving weapons to local partners, both to as uh, trade goods of value in their own right, but also as being tools to facilitate their doing slave raids further into the African colony. And that and this sort of divide and conquer model that's happening on one side of the Atlantic is also happening on the eastern seaboard. And in a mutatis mutandis, there's also new and more interesting research too about foreign interference or rather European trade of firearms into the into Indian Ocean states as well. All of which is basically to say that state formation both on the European continent and on the settler colonial periphery is intimately linked up with a wide circulation of arms and legitimacy beyond the traditional European boundaries of what constitutes sovereignty. A related basic question. Outside the U.S., does gun ownership correlate to gun violence in the way that it does here? Or another way to phrase that perhaps, what about New Zealand, Canada, and Australia? What does account for the American, the seeming American exceptionalism there? To own a concept that, you know, is is the, the subtitle of my book and the substance of it is, 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 is an attempt as a thought exercise to describe an arrangement to narrativize this history, but also describe a theoretical model for uh, the state in question, right, or rather the society or civilization in question where guns and the right to distribute them are widely made available, but albeit differentially in order to perpetuate certain types of hierarchies and processes of racialization, etc., uh, which I, I call this gun power, right? The question, as I look at it in the book, is why this distinctive model, namely of the wide distribution of weapons uh, tethered to processes of racialization and the maintenance of gendered hierarchies and processes of settler extraction, etc. How exceptional is that in the context of a global perspective, right? And, and, and it's very helpful to think both about other Anglo-settler states, but also um, examples in the more contemporary era and also in uh, uh, South America, as well as Southern Africa, more broadly over the long haul, right? Now, to get more specific about this, one thing I would one thing I would argue that separate that makes the American example sort of singular is that unlike other members of the British Commonwealth, the Americans seceded, and I think that's the word to use. I think secession is, is a helpful word to use from the British Empire and, and got away with it 
successfully, right? In no small part because they not only had their own weapons, right, but also because they had vast influxes of weapons from the French specifically. We can talk more about how they then immediately and rapidly built up their own armory system, but the U.S. uh, secessionists, the U.S. revolutionaries, broke from Great Britain through a whole apparatus of both formal army and irregular warfare. Put simply, the British Empire learned certain lessons from that experience and implemented elsewhere in the Anglosphere. It's not a coincidence, for example, that after accepting, uh, after you know, formalizing British surrender at Yorktown, Cornwallis, after a couple of years of uh, of shame, etc., uh, winds up in India, where his task is preventing the the settler sort of elite class of Anglo-Indians from developing a power base that could potentially threaten British hegemony there. Likewise, it's worth noting that in the cases of New Zealand and Australia, where there are, in the case of New Zealand, a extensive effort to arm certain Maori uh, proxies, and also later in Australia, where there is a uh, an interesting parallel problem involving the a large population of exogenous others, i.e. British convicts, that those are situations where, to put it sort of grimly, the work of ethnic cleansing is carried out much more efficaciously over a smaller population and in a much rapider period of time. There are some differences between Australia and New Zealand that are worth talking about in the one the, well, the Maori are absolutely racialized as others. There is a way in which uh, the fact that the Maori have certain agricultural practices and also have these sort of forts, and there's a series of wars that stretch between the 1840s through onward against settlers, a kind of grudging relationship vis-a-vis the Maori produces a... Um, a social formation that is, of course, highly inegalitarian, involves tons of confinement, etc., but is ends up in a position of, of settlement and some degree of stability that, by, by the 20th century. In Australia, however, uh, you have a model of, much as in India, a model of colonial policing where there is a systematic but subsequently disavowed effort to eradicate Aboriginal peoples. And Aboriginal peoples there are racialized as barbarous and savage precisely because, for example, they don't have farms, they're highly mobile, right, etc. And over the course of the 19th century, what that basically leads is to uh, parties of settlers, in a way that does resemble the American model, forming ad hoc posses, etc., alongside colonial police, namely Aborigines who are drawn from other parts of the continent, essentially uh, waiting until nighttime to find uh, campfires of Aboriginal settle- of, of, of Aborigines uh, and then just killing them. And that's uh, a history that is Australian historians are only now, I think, or at least white Australian Historians are only fully like turning to in some way, but the archives there, there's an interesting vocabulary of like dispersal. If you look through this text where it's like the, the, the royal police and the colonial police and, and sundry uh, citizens came across a, a, a group of, of Aborigines and then dispersed them. And what dispersed means is shot them all. But there's a twofold 
similarity and difference there between the American model. And the, and, and the similarity is that, yes, there is widespread ethnic cleansing, albeit it's understood as part of a colonial project and a, and, and a logic of policing, et cetera, that is not the same as the U.S. one and doesn't have like the federalist U.S. model or the state U.S. model. But the other thing that happens is that when in the mid-19th century, Australian gold is discovered in like New South Wales and elsewhere, and a whole bunch of Americans show up with a ton of guns, mind you, uh, the response of Australian authorities is to flood mining camps with police officers. Essentially, the idea of Americans toting guns the way that they had been doing on the North American continent is not is it carries unacceptable risks, right? Whether that be just like uh, internecine crime or a repetition of what happened in the, in the 18th century uh, in the Revolutionary War, because the state reverts to a more strict monopoly on violence after the settler colonial genocide, the acute period of settler colonial genocide in Australia. Yes, it's. It, it, I think so. There's this combination of both relatively sparse population to begin with of Aboriginal peoples, their separation by many different languages and over a large period of time, but also a what is both an ecocide and an act of enclosure and a kind of logic also too that in some ways resembles what happens in parts of the U.S. in terms of the way abject colonizers who are lower on the social ladder, and here I'm thinking of convicts, right, real a- enter uh, respectable society one way or another through killing Aboriginal peoples. <laughs> they do a very efficient job of it in a way that uh, North America doesn't quite. Now, this brings us to, to the other examples of, of Southern Africa and also to Brazil. Right, which which are very important for the purposes of my inquiry, uh, and which I would say represent key examples of what we could call gun power. Right, it's striking. Well, first let's talk Southern Africa. Right, it's striking that the experience of Southern African colonization resembles a lot of the colonization of uh, North America. Right, it led first by. Dutch, uh, and then a series of French Calvinists, and sort of like the development of, of Southern Africa transitioning into a brief uh, British holding because of complexities involving the war with Napoleon that we don't need to get into. But basically, you have a hardy group of settlers who are gripped by a um, austere Calvinist vision and want to pursue herding and farming and produce large families and who also are in continual war and practice slavery of Khoikhoi and other uh, indigenous African groups, right? At the point at which, and as the 19th century proceeds, it's very striking that the end and British control grows and the the, the value of the Southern African sort of coast as a, as a a spot for, uh, for refueling and trade becomes more important. And then ultimately too, once mineral resources are discovered, uh, it's very striking that the resistance of this emergent ethnic group, like boars, farmers, which leads to their seceding from increasingly settled sort of like uh, areas along the coast and moving inwards in these great treks and trying to perpetuate slavery under a different name, i.e. like the orphan trade, etc. Two things are really striking about the polities that they form. First, those polities are strongly Republican in like this classic Jeffersonian way. In fact, many of those Boer leaders will invoke Thomas Jefferson and this idea of like freeholding uh, farmer, like 
herder sort of like product turning making the land productive the second thing is to note is is that they're able it, what it runs on are not formal armies but uh, a militia based structure what the dutch call what the boer call commando with the k and these are essentially uh cadres of men young men who are obligated young men and old men who are obligated to form at a moment's notice groups uh armed providing their own ammunition their own rifles and horses and that work through a decentralized structure to defend homesteads and to do ethnic cleansing and What's striking here, too, is that by the end of the 19th century, with the discovery of uh, diamond and gold and other mineral resources, the Boers, like the Americans, mount a successful war against British occupation and then proceed to get entangled in in further conflicts involving uh, the Second Boer War, which doesn't go as well. But here again, the British learn their mistakes learn from their mistakes, grant certain degrees of sovereignty to the Boers, and gradually put them on the glide path towards membership in the Commonwealth and then independence. The thing to to note here, though, is that what that has produced in the contemporary moment, and, and this is a situation that was perpetuated through the apartheid era and also was sort of like hypertrophiedly visible in the case of Rhodesia, which is, again, another one of these corporate settler enterprises that is very much bound up in decentralized violence, but also like models of policing and deployment of of violence against locals, is that those states, both Rhodesia and then definitely South Africa, even against international pressure and and boycotts, etc., become really prolific manufacturers of arms, and small arms in particular, right? South Africa in particular is, you know, arms arms a great deal of the rest of Southern Africa for a long period of time. Just as the apartheid South African defense forces are the most powerful military in Southern Africa, if not all of Africa, for quite a long time. Precisely. And what this produces in the case of our contemporary situation, just fast forward to the present, is a state that I would say is like is a is a analogous contemporary in many respects to the to the U.S. albeit on the smaller scale as what I would call a gun power, right? With the stark realities of gun violence that impact everything from domestic violence to suicide to criminalized violence to racial violence. Uh, to racialized violence and, and, and intra-group violence among the poor, to gated communities, right, that protect the rich, to an enormous apparatus of private security and a sort of bleed through between military and police elements, etc. Right. That that to me is a, a the most striking peer state that the U.S. has when we think about the political economy of guns. And I, I, one thing I really want to say here is that that comparison is one that a lot of Americans refuse to even consider, and that a lot of British scholars and journalists, when they ask me, I found this repeatedly to be an issue, when they ask me questions about why the U.S. is so terrible, will only ever suggest as counterexamples New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. And if you mention either the phrase settler colonialism or the example of South Africa, generally those interviews don't end so well. And yet Brazil, I think, is increasingly a point of comparison for the United States. That's the other one, which is really striking, right? Because Brazil is 
the story of Brazil is very complicated, right? And, and in some ways resembles uh, the corporate settlement patterns that you see in the U.S., but also has this sort of different sort of geographical logic whereby there are these major urban centers that are founded on the coast, but the interior is extremely inaccessible for long periods of time. And in fact, some of these uh, some of these like coastal cities it's, it have more direct communication with the Portuguese, like mainland, than they do with one another. But over time, you do have this development of a uh, of slave raiding, uh, sort of like parties of, of a clear racialized hierarchy, which is fundamentally anti-black, but in wherein whiteness isn't quite the same thing as what we've got going stateside. But eventually, and this is the key thing, a formal nationally sanctioned arms industry is a like on an industrial scale is basically a twenty a mid twenty if I recall correctly a mid twentieth century phenomenon in Brazil. And those guns are also exported throughout South America. And there is, I don't think it's a coincidence either that there's a massive private security apparatus and that the Brazilian right, particularly under the Bolsonaro sort of like family, uh, and I think here specifically of several of the sons, is clamoring for what, in their own words, for a second amendment for Brazilians. And so there is, here we have a parallel case of a, of a, of a highly inegalitarian, highly racialized, extremely violent polity in which arms are also being manufactured on a, on a vast military scale. Police are heavily militarized and individual civilians reaction of a reactionary type are literally turning to emulate the U.S. model and, in the case of the Bolsonaro sons, actually cultivating ongoing relationships with the NRA. Is one factor that accounts for this longer duration of the violent process in the U.S. compared to some other Anglo settler colonies and the fact that the U.S. state never insists on this more total monopoly on violence, even while intensifying and institutionalizing ever more mass scale forms of state violence? Is that in part explained by the fact that this sometimes eliminationist, sometimes dominating, but always expansionist American empire had a sort of limitless frontier, or maybe, as Greg Grandin reminds us, not limitless, because we may just be finding those limits today. Yeah, we may be like hitting that point where the universe starts to contract and go back to our original Big Bang in some ways. But like, I do think that there is, in the case of the U.S. specifically, you can find various moments, and I track these in the book, and we can talk about them more historically, where basically shifts in labor organization and systems of production produce or, or, or generate very rapidly new configurations of armed legitimacy, right, to straddle the gap and to buy time for formal state capacity. Such that, for example, you have figures like entities like the Pinkertons, right, who essentially emerge to protect railroads or uh, clamp down on industrial uh, uprisings uh, in, 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 during the Second Industrial Revolution. And the Pinkertons, who simultaneously operate with the blessing of the federal government in a sort of para-secret service role or pre-proto-secret service role, who cross borders and are delegated as rangers by, like, Texas for you know, in order to track down bank robbers, etc. Uh, or you have groups like Citizens' Councils or, um, like, the White League or any of a variety of other entities that basically arise to impose the clan. racialized hierarchy. Yeah, the Klan is the, key, is the other key example of this, right? Is and and both the first Klan, right, which is a reaction, like a primary function of their reaction is to the 
uh, the fact that, uh, you know, nearly a quarter million African uh, black troops are, are returned home with their own weapons, with their service weapons, which they're allowed to keep. And, and, and the priority of the white state or the white caste system is to disarm them. But that, but that also, like, you have this fungibility, right? I think this, this a, t- a term that I've been stuck up on for five years now and have been using in lieu of sovereignty, but now, unfortunately, it has other more immediate uh, kind of digital associations, is to think about American sort of violence and legitimacy, not in terms of sovereignty, but in terms of fungibility, right? As this thing that can be cashed in and cashed out, that's fundamentally liquid, that's a competitive commodity, much like whiteness itself. And that as the political economic system changes, the U.S. state is very, from the start, has been very welcoming to highly adaptive modes of distributed violence work and that that's a uh, a feature that is recurrent and can take all sorts of new forms i think going going both forward and backwards well i want to talk about some of those newer forms since since the summer of 2020 blue lives matter has become core to maga ideology and and i want to pause here and explain the intended symbolism of that now ubiquitous flag so that people listeners understand just how creepy it is The thin blue line on the flag is the police. Everything above it is meant to represent civil society. And then everything below that thin blue line are the criminal elements of chaos that threaten the order and security of the good citizenry. What accounts for this extreme identification with the forces of repression among large segments of the civilian population at this particular moment in American history? Let's just just first off say that like, the Blue Lives Matter thing is an interesting phenomena to see people embrace after years of critiquing the shallowness of quote unquote identity politics. Like Blue Lives Matter stuff. I mean, I forget the Jeff Charlotte has written about, he's an excellent writer, has written about the origins of the Blue Lives Matter flag by basically. It, it's it in small, Harper's. Harper's, yes. And it's like, it was like a small business guy, right? Who comes up with this as like a thing on Etsy or something like that, right? But it's 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 identi- it's literally police identitarianism, right? And people identifying with the police as a as a show of support. It's 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 an identi- It is a job as an identity category, uh, which then is also taken to be like the the a Praetorian class of people who hang upon the very you know upon whose shoulders hangs the the possibility of of, of civilization against barbarism. I think it's it's terrifying. It's deeply cheesy. It's sort of goofy, but it's also like uncanny how, for example, uh, there are several states, I think Louisiana is one of them, where the police are treated legally as having, as enjoying the status as a protected class, right? Like, like spraying all cops or bastards on a police car is a hate crime against police Americans. And this it's amazing to think about this, that a profession is granted the same or even superior degrees of protection than, say, sexual orientation or religious belief or ethnic background, right? It, it, it's, it, it's simply bonkers. But I think the other thing that's at stake in this, and this is also why a comparative perspective is helpful, and here I think of, of research by the uh, security studies scholar and I think sociologist Paul Amar, there are other countries, and uh, Amar's work takes the examples of, of Brazil and Egypt as, as key. His book is the, is, is the uh, Security Archipelago, where police forces under scrutiny by and facing public crises of legitimacy um, embark on processes of like moral vigilantism, but also of at once top-down and airsats, but also somewhat grassroots 
movements of police identitarianism that center around protecting the family, protecting the children, that leverage themes of uh, evangelical or some sort of like fundamentalist religiosity, and that are about purifying and protecting real families of the state in Brazil or of Egyptians, etc., against quintessentially sexual minorities, against supposed uh, sex traffickers of children, against supposed sexual deviance, i.e. trans people, and that these are uh, cannily successful ways for police to um, consolidate their power and, and, and court legitimacy and, and get full-throated from support by people, even as their you know capacity for brutality and the representation of that brutality in the media is present like never before. For decades, pro-gun control liberals have worked with the right to intensify the severity of gun laws that target gun crimes, including felons in possession of a firearm, where the mere fact that a felon is in possession of a gun is itself a felony. And those measures, of course, do a lot to spur mass incarceration, but nothing to control the entirely legal production and distribution of guns. Indeed, the the NRA's very image of this honorable, law-abiding gun owner requires the specter of the armed criminal as its constitutive other. So they're very invested in this, and liberals often go along for the ride. What what do you see to be this the relationship between this country's free-for-all, seemingly free-for-all gun culture on the one hand, and this intense policing and incarceration of certain populations for guns on the other. Because the discussion of guns often assumes that we don't have any gun control in this country and that there is a system of total and complete laissez-faire at work. But but you've written that gun control is, in fact, a central feature of the landscape of American violence. What What sort of gun control do we have in this country? And how does it shape the sorts of violence that we see unfolding today? Yeah, I think so, so. This is one of those points where I think we can pull back and, and and get and go for that deep historical perspective, right? And at that point, we can stipulate and we can just observe. It's a matter of fact that the regulation and distribution, the control in those terms of firearms, has been a originary and we could even say constitutive if not quite constitutional, feature of the North American civilizational settler enterprise since the get-go. There has been a perennial concern with who can have guns, what those guns can be used for, and a perennial distribution of situations where people, you know, a profusion of situations where people can choose to arm themselves, but in so doing may also be, uh, you know, like predatorily included where the fact that they are arming themselves, you know, can be reason, can make illicit they're being killed. So that's that's like the deep structure here f- from my perspective, right? In the sense that, and this goes back all, again, you can go to the British colonial era, you can go through the antebellum era, and it becomes very, very clear that a what is anathema to elites, but also to like the majoritarian power structure is the idea of others, uh, of basically bad guys getting guns. And in order, because in order, if the bad guys are going to get the guns, then we have to, the good guys have to have yet more guns, but of course, then the bad guys will be able to get those guns and so on and so forth, right? Now, what's interesting for our purposes in the 20th century, and and the reason I'm talking about, I'm using this sort of abstract language about the distribution and and, um, regulation of guns, is that the term gun control, much like legal fixation on the Second Amendment, 
only really starts to happen and it only really starts to be used in the mid-1950s. Gun control is not a given naturalized term of American politics. It never has been. Right? It's, not, it's obviously not used in the Constitution, but also, and more importantly, if you look through newspaper headlines prior to, like, 1955, gun control will come up in the context of, like, well, you know, we're putting machine guns on these planes that are made of balsa wood and paper, and how do they control those guns, right? It, the, uh, the, the term gun control enters the U.S. discourse when then-Senator John F. Kennedy proposes a gun control act, which is a piece of legislation that fails in the Senate— um, but that is a protectionist measure designed to protect the interests of New England firearms manufacturers. and th- Like Remington. Yeah, and Smith and um, Smith and Wesson is the big one for him. And, and, and also, t- this is sort of the poetic, the poetic irony of this, is that it's a control, too. Like, you can look through the uses of the word control in the congressional record, but control is all about import-export regulations. The specific concern, and this is another feature, think about, like— th- I, I promise if you think about America as just like a giant sink and nexus of guns, it's so much more helpful than thinking about institutions and like the names we briefly give things in certain frames. But like the, the guns that are that, that people want to control and that Kennedy wants to control are cheap imported World War II surplus, right? After every single American war, there is the problem of a tremendous amount of guns that are a surplus and that spread out through the population, whether that be the guns that uh, black Union soldiers go back home with, or in the case of World War II, uh, or hell, in the case of World War I, it's all these Tommy guns that were made but never got into the trenches because the idea came too late, uh, and then that produces gun control acts in the 30s, or in the 1950s and onwards, a these large stockpiles of Italian, German, and French-made firearms that can be bought very, very cheaply. And the Kennedy uh, plan is to prevent import of those weapons so as to drive up sales of classic American guns. That's what gun control initially means. Now, it's, again, talk about brutal ironies of history. It is precisely by one such foreign-made, and specifically an Italian-made World War II rifle, that uh, Kennedy is, is killed. Now... Uh, a bunch of senators, Democratic senators, including, uh, I think, Dobbs Sr., who are coming, who also former FBI agent and are coming from the Northeast, uh, attempts to seize upon the assassination of JFK by one of these, again, scary foreign weapons. This is another theme that goes all the way back to the founding, right? The Dutch are giving Mohawks really scary flintlocks, right? The uh, Sioux are getting their hands on really scary Winchester rifles. And and now it's the uh, people who want to kill the president, quote-unquote Marxist, like Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, if you want to believe that story, are killing presidents with these scary European guns to push for a gun control act in Congress. That fails repeatedly. But it has an immediate series, or at least with an immediate series and a, and a longer-term series of profound repercussions. The first is that when a federal gun control law happens under the Johnson administration, and in 68, I believe, it is, and this is a key bit of history that's worth noting, it is paired with an enormous omnibus crime bill that, among other things, arms police with military weapons, puts them in schools, helps uh, proliferate militarized responses, 911 systems, etc. 
right? So, so keep that in mind always, that from the get-go, gun control qua the restriction of, of, of bad, evil weapons, and Johnson has several press conferences where he talks about our streets are being flooded with Soviet guns, is always wedded to a uh, giving of additional funds to the police. It's a, but I should say, that Gun Control Act is still an uphill battle because the NRA fights it, and it only really kicks in. It's about to be—it's almost a dead letter until Martin Luther King is assassinated and cities around the country erupt. And the Gun Control Act then, you know, is, is brought through in no small part because, like, that's a bridge too far and the, the uprisings are, you know, too frightening. But the other thing that happens, and this gets at your question about the history of the NRA, right, is that during this period— the NR- during the period of the 50s and 60s, the NRA, which is historically speaking another one of those organizations that came up in the 19th century and that straddled private 501, not, not, it wasn't a 501c3, but like private charity organization, uh, an entity that's about uh, improving the vigor of the youth like the YMCA, but also is about training, weapon- training people in the use of weapons uh, and also literally distributing guns from the War Department. And is heavily involved in the arms trade more generally and has always had, even in the 1920s, a, a strongly xenophobic, anti-Bolshevik tinge. Uh, but the NRA at, at this point in the 1950s and 60s is in an interesting position where it is a, a lot of its membership, a lot of its traditional membership, uh, generally former high-level military brass or the ones who administrate it, is contemplating a move from D.C., to, I think, like uh, Colorado or somewhere out west to turn more towards hunting and outdoorsmanship. And like marksmanship. Yeah, and like marksmanship. But again, again, like I, the, there is like, I really want to stress this. They've always been a right-wing organization, right? I just, I just really, there's a, there's like a myth of a good NRA that is, I'm not putting this on you. Uh, no, no. But 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 there's a story that they, that they were kind of normal and then went insane when in fact they were always right-wing. They just became just a totally other order of magnitude of right-wing extreme. Yeah, yeah, they became distinctly 60s and 70s culture war right-wing. But I, I but I will say too if you look back at like what the, what 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 members of the NRA or even you read NRA magazines in the 1920s, their people are already deeply concerned about filthy southeastern immig- southeastern European immigrants and uh their bolshevik leanings and the fact that people need to start stockpiling guns to fight off a bolshevik takeover of the country. Right? That's all it, it's Hell, I mean, I should say too, like if you, if you, like, um, just to get at the point about race for a second here, there are a lot of like blue-blooded NRA members and naturalists, and cons- I think James Audubon is one of these people in the 19th century who want to ban, At- who, who who want to exclude Italian immigrants from having Second Amendment rights, <laughs> right? Like, there's all this weird sort of racialization here. Well, a lot of like the Teddy Roosevelt era conservationists were ardent eugenicists and nativists as well. Yes, and it's interesting too that it's it's like they the Second Amendment should not apply to Italians because I think the line is because they are savage bird killers, right? So, anyways, uh, in the '60s, the NRA is considering a kind of there's an old guard new guard thing going on where the NRA is considering moving out west and abandoning its abandoning a lot of the self defense etc. stuff or at least downplaying that even though it's always been part of its deal. And downplaying the the lobbying aspect. Yes, precisely. And there is essentially a coup within the NRA led by a figure, for those of you who've read Greg Grannon's work, will be kind of helpful, a former uh, Border Patrol czar and uh, as a teen, a 
killer of a young uh, Mexican boy, uh, Harlan Carter, uh, but also uh, figures including Byron Engel, who those of you may be familiar with the history of uh, counterinsurgency policing <laughs> uh, and uh, Stuart Schrader's work on um, Badges Without Borders. He's a member of the NRA, essentially a whole bunch of like... Also available in the Dig archives for interested listeners. Yep. Engel was a huge gun nut, wound up committing suicide with a gun, actually. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. But basically, he's a member of the NRA, and he helps bring Carter in. And all these essentially right-wing members of what you could call like a deep state in the sense that they are present in intelligence and counterinsurgency stuff, together engineer a takeover of the NRA and uh, a hard push to a orientation towards self-defense, culture war and a reprise of this frontier discourse of dependent but now it's defending suburbia against uprisings of you know savage quote-unquote negroes who were storming fort apache etc now the thing here that's particularly striking and worth bearing in mind about this though is that a central organizing feature of the nra during this transition what allows the Groups of um, reactionaries like Carter and Byron Engel to consolidate their appeal is reaction to the Gun Control Act. So in a very perverse way, but in a way that is absolutely legible, reaction to the gun control, the, I, the this phrase gun control, which again means anodynely just import bans of guns, Right at the time, but but of course it's control, and control is scary. Gun control becomes the thing around which a right wing NRA reconsolidates itself in a kind of dialectic, and it's the opposition that the NRA represents to gun control that, in turn, gives a liberal, tough on crime, also kind of tethered to the intelligence and policing community, albeit in different ways, gun control movement to define itself against the NRA. So this term, gun control, becomes a organizing principle for a fundamentally vicious self-perpetuating dialectic between right-wing rea- like reactionaries who are tethered to the arms industry and to a certain decentralized vision of violence alongside the certain uh, red-blooded jingoistic patriotism versus administrative, technocratic, carceral liberals but that's the term that makes them understand one another and that they can both fundraise off of. Are there forms of gun control or, or strategies to limit the supply of guns that do not rely on the state's own armed capacity or the state's own claim on a monopoly of legitimate violence? Because beyond bans, that would be enforced by armed cops, which would not only provide a pretext for further policing, something that has already happened in American history, but would also lead to a lot of Ruby Ridge type situations. What other options are there? There are strategies, of course, like gun buyback programs, which, to be honest, seem pretty anemic to me. And and then also, maybe more promisingly, the closure of sanction or sanction of gun manufacturers, which could be amazing, but seems politically impossible. But so do many things we want to do. So I'll bracket that. What should we be considering in terms of meaningful alternatives to the gun control status quo? I think that the phrase gun control is chronically fucked. 
Like I think that that as an organizing frame has basically is basically a way to for, for a carceral liberal model to proceed, and for a reactionary ghoulish model to like again folia de dance of death. Like that there that's. It, there is there's a way in which, for example, I don't know, like like a Biden administration calling for gun control, or new assault weapons ban, which thankfully he hasn't done yet. But like every time, Bar- like Joe Biden mentions the phrase gun control, like it, the NRA becomes more powerful, and a perverse legacy of the of a gun control push from a liberal establishment may act or perverse. I mean, from our perspective, but you know, maybe very self fulfilling and even appreciated from theirs might be that actually the NRA is resuscitated from its current position of financial objection and and, and corruption and otherwise, you know, status as a right wing grifter organization, right? But yeah, I think like gun control itself is pretty much fucked, uh, both because fundamentally it's always been about protectionist measures for U.S. arms manufacturers. And it's also almost always been tethered to massive arming of police. Uh, and I would say, too, that even things like gun buyback programs, like, they work in some cases, but also, like, they don't work in others. And what the fuck are we supposed to make of the fact that, you know, there, there are gun buyback programs in some municipalities, but also there are other municipalities where police departments are obliged by law to resell guns seized from crime scenes for profit. Right. So it, it's it, 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 it is sort of like a, a Dutch boy problem here. And, and there are too many holes in in the, in this mess. And, and, and also don't even get me started to about like the difficulties of like these fantasies of like these fantasies of kind of like gun, gun what I would call like these kind of like very masculine visions of gun power on the part of radical organizations where that'll be like, well, we just declare a temporary autonomous zone. And I, I'm not knocking that as a venture, you know, in the abstract, but, you know, it it. it I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, doing that within the broader context of this messy state uh, results in situations where uh, the usual suspects wind up getting shot. Right. I think that's the part of the tragedy of Chaz. But like on another level here, let's just assume then that I'm bracketing either traditional gun control stuff because I take it as being largely counterproductive and I'm not in a position to gainsay independent whether self self defense actions or community defense actions, because you know, again, I think the features of both of those is is you know one thinks here of Fenon that a lot of things that are revolutionary involve a acceptance of the death of the revolutionaries themselves, right? So again, that's not my not my ministry, and it's not we'll bracket it. But I do think that there are tons of things that are not gun control that could be uh, brought to bear on making gun violence less of a problem. Right. This is a very basic way to say it. And it sounds sort of simplistic, but like um, if we were to play like triage, if we were to do things like Chicago is a great example of this, for example, right? everyone likes to talk about Chicago in a kind of trollish way as though like, well, what, sure, this massacre is bad, but how about gun violence in Chicago? And the answer is to say, fuck you to those people and point to the fact that local activists were able to produce a trauma center in Chicago, right? Get that built. So like on a triage level, if you have trauma centers, if you have expanded medical care, People are less likely to die of gunshot wounds. They'll simply get to the hospital faster. It's triage. It's not as sexy or it doesn't satisfy the the perverse impulse of, say, a liberal who's like, yeah, we need gu- we need jackboots with guns to kick down the doors of white people with guns. to, And that's a solution to gun violence, right? Because from my perspective, like there's – it's a difference in, in, in intensity rather than a difference in kind between the way in which a lot of liberals will – sneer at the idea of personally carrying a gun but are very happy to call the police like they're dialing up a manager and have that guy show up with a gun on his hip 
right? That to me is, yeah, I, I don't see much moral differentiation between those two. But also other things like, and this sounds so basic, but I really do mean this. When it comes to certain types, when it comes to gun violence, it's gun violence is the tip of the iceberg for other kinds of violence. It's dispos- It's uniquely lethal, to be sure, uh, and uh, the consequences of gun uh, wounding is also horrible, but it tracks to other types of immiseration, desperation, and lack of opportunities. It, there's been done many, many times. If you interview, say, like, you have to you have to disaggregate gun violence into different subcategories, I think, for, as a matter of beginning, right? But, like, if you, I don't know, say, interview youth carry illegally in various urban centers around the country and you ask them why they're doing it and what, what, what would bring them to stop it, the answer is, generally from them, that they would like to not have to walk through open-air drug markets and they would not have to like to have to feel like they have to join a set and, and get involved in retaliatory violence or otherwise be killed. And so the answer there is not, in my, again, if we want to not double down on policing, it's, I don't know, probably some kind of drug legalization, right? And, or another one might be like, you ask people like, well, why are you, why are you carrying a gun? Is he working this underground economy? And the answer is, well, because I can't get a job with dignity that pays enough to live. So these are very basic, like, or another thing to think about here too, is if we consider gun suicide as a kind of gun violence, and I absolutely think it is, uh, if you look at the demographics of who commits guns, gun suicide and when, the overwhelming majority of that is white men, white middle-aged men, and the numbers on this are crazy. Like, Americans are something, like, depending on you, I, I've come across some figures via UN data where it's like white um, white middle-aged American men are something like 75 to 80% of gun suicides on the planet, if you count it in certain ways, which is really saying something. The... Te- Basically, and any action where I can tell you this, as people age, as men hit middle, as men specifically hit middle age, and then they face either a difficult medical diagnosis, a chronic episode of depression, divorce, bankruptcy, layoff, loss of a job, bankruptcy, loss of a home, the, ch- the chances of their shooting themselves get like exponentially higher. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying like we need to protect marriage or some bullshit like that. I mean, divorces happen for a reason, and sometimes they're very, very good reasons. And who the fuck are we to judge? But like on another level, you gotta wonder if life were left miserable, if someone's losing a job wasn't all that stood between them and being homeless, if a medical diagnosis wasn't a ticket to bankruptcy, if you didn't have to contemplate losing a farm that's been in your family for generations because it's gonna be bought up by some horrible agribusiness, then probably you wouldn't be as likely to kill yourself, right? Which is all to basically say that like people don't, people generally don't commit murder and self-harm out of like exuberance and joy and uh, a plenitude of options. It happens more because of an immiseration uh, and desperation and a limited set of possibilities. And you know, it's part of what I think is so sick about our current situation is that a lot of right-wing figures, and I think here are people like J.D. Vance or, or Ted Cruz, will, like, invoke these things like mental health, right, like, quote-unquote, mental health as a problem, but they'll only do it kind of halfway and in a way that's totally disingenuous because what they mean by— And just to deflect yeah. from the guns. Yeah, to deflect from the guns, exactly. And also, like, never mind that, like, mental health is—you know, the people with mental health issues are far more likely, like, dramatically more likely to be the victims of gun violence, particularly by police, than they are to be violent themselves. Like, let's just stipulate that. But the truth of the matter is, is that, I don't know, I, I think that if you were to— ha- if, if we were to have universal health care, single-payer, like, or free— 
And we diminish the stigma of like psychiatric care or psychological care or simply produce networks of social care where people could check in with one another, then people might feel a little less atomized and a little less likely to off themselves. And also, there is some interesting criminological literature about this focusing particularly in California, where there's both a lot of suburbanization and immigration from other states. I mean, like... It's not a coincidence is that in situations where people don't know one another, you do have certain types of weird formations of people basically kind of losing it, right? California has a lot of ser- has a disproportionate number of serial killers, and it, it's not because of like, I don't know, like they listen to the Red Hot Chili Peppers constantly. It has to do with instead, like there are a lot of transplants. There are a lot of people who don't have organic communities. And if you have neighbors, if you have institutions of care, if you have actually a functioning socius rather than like a hollowed out neoliberal hell – then the impulse to kill yourself and the impulse to do harm, like people are more liable to check up on you before you go that level. Yeah, it seems like it cannot be a coincidence that the age of mass shootings parallels an era of anime driven by late stage suburbanization and terminal onlineness. Yeah, and also of like a pervasive militarization and a hyper concentration of the burdens of forever war on the poorest members of society and unequal distribution of of exposure to risk and fantasies about guns as being like a source of power and as things that solve problems rather than make more problems like this is and i think i i think a lot in terms of despite my psychoanalytic commitments i'm oftentimes drawn to like the the thinking of william james right that quintessential american philosopher and psychologist but this idea of like things being live options Right. And for a lot of people, turning to a gun to end their own life, kill their family, kill themselves is a live option. It's socially imaginable. Right. It's it's psychically available. It's at hand. And the truth of the matter is, is that there are other countries which, you know, with grant American rates of gun ownership per capita and in total have no real analog elsewhere on the planet. Uh, but there are countries with very high rates of uh, gun possession that don't have the same problems with suicide, femicide, or mass shootings. And those also happen to be ones with less social inequality, better health care systems, and more social connection in general, right? So I think that the task is, if gun control talk is a trap and produces in its own perverse way more types of gun violence, because I do think, I don't know, like mass incarceration is gun violence, is certainly like made possible by it, then maybe like making people less miserable and desperate, just making life feel less cheap could go a long way towards fixing this problem. I agree with everything that you said there, but aren't the guns themselves still a big part of the problem? Don't guns kill people alongside people killing people? So so what about, even if it's not remotely imaginable right now, even if the political path to get there, like so many of the things we want, is it pretty unclear? What about targeting the gun industry's production of guns? Yeah, let me be very clear. I, I, I have a... We can disambiguate between the demand size, demand side elements, which both has that element of like maybe making people less likely to use guns, making it less socially imaginable, and also the, you know, focusing on the demand side in terms of more police stopping more, doing more stops and frisks and doing more ruby ridges, which I think is unacceptable to deal with guns, but instead of focus on supply. And it's here that I think we have, that's, there is something there, but I want to point to how this 
is a, a space where decades of, of, of strenuous commitment to the false horizon of gun control and a exceptionalist commitment to like thinking of the U.S. as a isolated domestic space in opposition to its foreign connections has made things really, really difficult. And here's what I specifically mean, right? Every time you hear one of these Democratic politicians talk about how absolutely horrible it is that kids in our schools and on quote-unquote our streets were killed by weapons of war, you have to wonder, well, why is it that so many of these weapons are like— why are those weapons of war made here to begin with? The flip side of that statement is that it's okay if it's on someone else's street. In fact, we've had figures like Pete Buttigieg and all these other liberals be like, well, it's so great that I could, you know, I carried this gun in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's why people shouldn't have it here. Like, the answer there is not to appeal to this elsewhere where those guns belong, but to rather be like cohesively, you know, we, if we're committed to diminishing gun violence at home, that also means like diminishing our apparent lust for committing gun violence abroad directly and also perpetuating it. And what's very striking in this point, and, and I will tell you, this is even more depressing than thinking about the, the the violence of guns because small arms are the largest generator of fatalities worldwide, right? Because they're very durable, they're very cheap, they're very easy to use, they last a long time. But small arms are incredibly cheap, incredibly inexpensive. They are only a tiny part of a frankly gargantuan Gantuan military industrial arms lobbying apparatus. And it, it is frankly terrifying and bizarre at once that talking about defunding, nationalizing, or eliminating the U.S. arms industry in total, from F-35s to MRAPs to landmines to M4s, is just not something that people talk about in the mainstream. Yeah, because I, I think that the problem and I think the real sense of futility here that people feel, it's always exp it's typically expressed in the form of the power of the NRA. And, and that's something. But something deeper, I think, is that Americans know that the country is armed to the hilt from the military down through the police to the home and that a generalized disarmament of this country is very hard to imagine because you can't imagine the people disarming as long as the police are armed. You can't imagine the police disarming as long as the people are so armed. It's an arms race and mutually assured destruction logic, right? And it's, it is in micro what a lot of this other stuff is in macro. And like, and like, look, I think there is some way in which like, I read, you know, and in my work, and, and I think you don't have to be a psychoanalyst to see this, but you can read that, that mantra of like, from my cold dead hands is basically a suicide vow, right? Like you, that's not like a defiant till the end. That's like, I'm going to kill myself. Like, like I'd rather have this gun and cling to, and cling to this power then let an alternative world happen. And I think that's true also on the macro level. Like there are a lot of people who seem to think that like better like the end of the world than a diminution of American hegemony, right? And 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 I was I will say that this is what's the, the thing that's been more distressing and depressing for me is that if you think life is cheap when it comes to guns, the cheapness of life when it comes to hundred million dollar planes and missiles and the like is the numbers and figures are almost geologic in their scale. And it's, and I will say too, that, that there were brief, there have been brief moments in American history, specifically following World War I uh, and the 20s and 30s, where 
there was talk with language of like ending merchants of death and the the, the death industry, etc., which was largely destroyed thanks in no small part to uh, red baiting and uh, persecution by Hoover's FBI you know, involving a suicide of more than a few activists and politicians. But also uh, it was undone by the turn, which has basically persisted since the 1930s and which is our current model of military Keynesianism. We built like we, there is no, uh, there is no analogy I think even among the police to the way that uh, there is a bipartisan consensus on lavishing weapons, rather lavishing funds on arms manufacturers, even when arms manufacturers, even when branches of the military are like, no, we don't need this much, right? We don't need this. We, we don't, we don't, we, we need to, we need to slow down the F-35. No, we don't want the Osprey. No, no, the, these MRAPs are, are a mess. We throw more and more money at them. And there's something about that, that that fundamental, like, illogic of constantly dumbing, de- uh, dumbing down, of doubling down on violence on the macro scale that that has to be thinkable, that has to be talked about. And because only then, I think, too, can we deal with the relatively piddling stuff that is the manufacture of small arms. It's a two way street because the state buys all these arms and then arms manufacturers and gun rights advocates really emphasize this relationship to the American military, military service, war. But but then, as you mentioned, liberals emphasize that too, but they do so by insisting that, by insisting that murderous weapons should only be deployed on dangerous others beyond our borders. And as you mentioned, Pete Buttigieg infamously tweeted just after the October 2017 Las Vegas Strip massacre, quote, I did not carry an assault weapon around a foreign country so I could come home and see them used to massacre my countrymen. What is going on there with the right wanting to bring the war home and liberals wanting to keep the war confined to foreign realms? This is the point where it's like I think some psychoanalysis is helpful because we're dealing with people wanting things both ways, like or with trying to maintain a hygienic distinction between violence that happens over there and that can't happen here. That's not how violence works, right? Like, like you can't like the folly of being like, well, what if we just repressed the repressed better? Then it won't return. <laughs> but, but no, you, the, 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 there's a reason why violence workers, I think here, police are more likely to be violent than other people. There's a reason why the military has a pervasive sexual assault and suicide problem, right? It, you can't like leave things outside the home or like the homeland, particularly when also like there are all these dynamics that shift these weapons materially back to the homeland to be used against other civilians. Right. Or, and it's, I, I think the thing that, that's horrifying for me too, and you, you can think about this, like I remember there was another Democratic uh, politician who deleted this tweet in the wake of a mass shooting. I forget which one, and I can find the source, but like it's it, it's in the Internet Archive at this point, where it's like, if you want to use an assault rifle to go shoot people, you should deploy to Afghanistan. Just says it. Just does it. Right? And, 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 and I mean, but but it's also like there is an honesty to that in terms of its actual statement of what that what the logic is for so many other people that people don't want to say more baldly. I'm not, I'm not praising it. I'm saying it's clarifying. And I think it's also true. Like, like for example, there have been, I think it was, 
I believe it was Parkland, right? Where, again, yeah, I think it was Parkland, where the shooter, if memory serves, uses Smith & Wesson M&P-15. And the M&P, the M&P and M&P-15 stands for military and police. And it's a semi-automatic civilian version of an AR-15 carbine or whatever that it mimics the one that the military and police use. That's the one that he wanted to use. And it's one, by the way, that you can play in various video games too, right? This is just like available. I'm not blaming video games, right? As a, Violence is not monocausal, but it's already there. It's thinkable. It's a thing you could turn to. But if you may recall, too, where there was this thing going on where there was this heroic discourse about, uh, and I'm not discounting the sacrifice. I'm just pointing to like the, the tragedy that, that underwrites this, where, where young men, I think a young man uh, saved other victims in the school, other people in the school from being shot by opening a window to allow them go, to allow them to flee. And I think, I think this is part one. I may have gotten this wrong. Forgive me. It's been a long, long three weeks. But uh, there were all these media reports about how this young man was in ROTC, right? He was in the Reserve Officer Training Corps. He was a uh, he he embodied the selfless sacrifice of the U.S. military, etc. The sign of patriotic logic. And I'm not belittling his. I, I again, I can't belittle th- that boy's death. But it was also the case that the shooter himself, I think, tried to join ROTC, maybe have been it and kicked out, right? And note, this is a case where we want to have things two ways. We want to be like, well, our militarization is good. Carrying guns elsewhere is good. When people do that here, that's an entirely different, unrelated thing, and that's bad. And I think that's um, that's a, that's splitting. That's schizoid. That's not a coherent way to 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 think about the world. But people seem to want to have their cake and eat it too. And Porsche and the right then is reconciling that contradiction by just bringing the war home. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they get to and they, uh, I mean, the right is the right is, is 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 freer in some ways because they fully embraced like the the postmodern slippage of the signifier, right? They can say whatever the fuck they want, and it doesn't have to be coherent. It doesn't have to be like it, it just has to be half a thought and tap a certain sadness or a certain desperation, and then you you can serve up scapegoats, right? Whereas Democrats, like, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that meet like literally the Uvalde situation, and and I want to be careful about what I say about this too, but like, I don't think it's a coincidence that even as people, not very political people, but also people of liberal persuasions, people of right-wing persuasions, if people of all sorts of just basic commonsensical orientations were responding to, this, responding to a scene in which the Uvalde police were beating and tasing parents as their children were being murdered, the Biden administration immediately, knee-jerk, issues a hagiographic statement about how much it appreciates the sacrifice and services of America's law enforcement. As a knee-jerk thing. Even as even the mainstream media is kind of shocked by the images that are beginning to emerge in the stories. Yes. Yes. And I, and I will say, too, I want to like, I, 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 we may never know what happens there. Perhaps we should have some faith in the DOJ like, investigation. But also, like, let's be real about this. That's the way that story of, of the police, all the quote unquote failures, which I would actually say is police just doing their job, but like their consistent kettle logic of of misdirections and lies and these weird things in which they'll they'll uh, police will say things like well earlier reports were incorrect though of course they were the source of those reports right it's all about disavowal and, and not taking responsibility what falls out there is you know people seem to be unwilling to ask certain questions that i think people should ask as questions right like I have yet to see, I mean, I, I'm trying to follow the pressers, but I would like to see some people ask the, the police, like, can they confirm that they did not fire into the room where there were children? 
Can they confirm that they did not shoot any teachers or any children? Can they confirm that they did not choose to isolate the shooter in that room, no matter who may have been in there alive or bleeding out? Those are legitimate questions, right? They're certainly legitimate questions, all the more legitimate given the police's apparent inability to answer anything honestly, but those are questions that should be thinkable, right, even though they're horrible. But instead, it appears that there is even in being critical, an attachment to some kind of fantasy or to some type of fantasy image of the good guy with a gun. And the police, you know, I think about that, and the police are that, exemplarily, for a lot of liberals, right? And I think about that completely disgusting David Axelrod line, right, from two or three days ago, which was like, the inexplicable failure of the police proves more than ever the desperate need for the police's existence, which, which is just... It's political theology, but but but, but uh, it, it's like lobotomized. I don't even it, it's 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 per that is perverse beyond perversion. I do want to. You touched on this a moment ago. I do want to talk a little about video games and whether we should indeed blame them a little, or maybe blame is not the right frame. But there seems to be a point of intersection between one video games, perhaps particularly Call of Duty, played by the Evalde shooter and others. Two, arms manufacturers, and three, the military. In the video game Call of Duty, characters, as far as I understand, are troops firing real-life brand guns. And then gun manufacturers use Call of Duty and military imagery in their advertising. I read an article, I think from a couple years back in The Atlantic, that read, quote, Fans of the most popular first-person shooter games, Fortnite, Apex Legends, Call of Duty, PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds, have created dozens of guns in real life videos dedicated to explaining all the similarities between real guns and their virtual counterparts, their weight, their rate of fire, the physical stamina needed to carry and fire them in real life, and their efficacy in each corresponding game. Brownells, a real-world gun and gun accessory manufacturer, has done the same. And indeed, until... These companies were freed from copyright restrictions by a 2011 Supreme Court ruling. Video game companies actually signed licensing agreements with firearms companies. There's, of course, a long history of people I hold in serious, serious disrepute blaming video games for violence and many other things. But is there indeed something going on here? So, like, this is the point at which I think we need to talk about overdetermination, right? Or like, this idea that um, events can have multiple causes, right, and uh, active and reflect multiple precipitating realities, and produce multiple results, but in ways that are not monocausal and in ways that are not predictive, right? Because I want to be very, very clear about this: that that the the those people who are attempting to attribute violence to entertainment products are generally also very quick to then argue for profiling mechanisms by which we can determine that so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that, et cetera. Like, like much in the same way as like, you know, like in the 1990s, you'd have people be like, well, the kids who wear clothing, like clothing featuring like, like Tupac on it are more likely to be violent, et cetera. In other words, it, it's the, the dream of prediction, whether crude or algorithmic is nonsense because well, violence is multifactorial and, uh, if these things did generate violence ipso facto in their own right, we'd have a lot more of it. 
And I think it's also worth saying here, too, that there are plenty of examples of countries where, you know, Japan comes to mind here, where there's a tremendous, where, where the threshold of what passes for violence in video games is, is mind-boggling by American standards and that they don't have the type of violence we do. So let's, just, let's stipulate that. And I think it's also important to stipulate that it's a, there, there's a series of deflections of responsibility on, much, which are always sort of in bad faith, much in the same way as like, you know, uh, the NRA will blame liberal Hollywood for fetishizing guns. But also if you go to the NRA museum in Virginia, they have an entire hall of guns featured in famous movies, right? Like, again, it's, it's, it's wanting to have things both ways at once, which is a, a, a really, I think it's a pretty ubiquitous problem under capitalism, but Americans are really, really good at being gonzo about it. But it's worth saying a bunch of things, right, about this, and, I, and I'll I'll, ca- I'll cap I'll cope with the fact that like I play a ton of violent video games. Uh, in fact, I have actually some very good friends who I've met, like like veterans and stuff, who are leftists and anarcho socialists, right, who I play games with, and I think it's. It's also worth saying, too, that uh, that's a way a lot of people work through trauma, and it's a lot of way that people build certain communities. And um, it's also worth saying, too, that the uh, video game industry is not it's not just the things where there are guns running around, but a lot of even like the physics architecture for video games more broadly are subsidized by the U.S. military or done via like labs in California, which are university based, but take money from the U.S. military to do things to, to generate like physics engines and all this shit. It's so, like the military is is in all this digital stuff all over. Let's just so let's just stipulate all that stuff. Right. I mean, the thing for me at that point is it is really hard to talk about, but it has to do with like this interface between the imaginary and the real between like the domains of libidinal economy and and these imagination, the imaginary scenes of like, how do you get to what makes a person a hero? What makes a person agential and what is materially capable for them to use, right? I read the most recent manifesto, for example, of the Buffalo shooter, right? And he has a pages and pages of object fetishism about the, his gun loadout, right? And in some ways, it's it's not very, it's not, it's what you'd see on a forum post, but also what you see in a, in a Tom Clancy novel about this is how he's going to, this scope versus that scope, all that shit. But there is this way in which, like, you could say, and I, I've heard people say this, and it's not, it's, you know, it, it conspiratorial or not, I think it's worth sort of thinking for a little bit that, yeah, you know, we don't have a, 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 a mandatory draft, right? And we don't have a widespread civilian military training program, but we do apparently have a uh, very uh, lively virtual world for training people to handle small arms, right? Of course, with certain limits, right? Like you, what you get, in, among other things in Call of Duty, you can pick up ammunition and it's universal between different weapons, which is not real. Like there, there are ways in which that's cartoonish, but again, like it normalizes something. And there are people of certain persuasions who will see these games as just like murder simulators. What I think, though, is is honestly more troubling about these franchises, right? And well, here, actually, no, there's two more things to say. The first, right, is that it's not like that's the primary red flag that we need to focus on insofar as that red flags that are much more real and much more probative of violence get ignored all the goddamn time. Like the fact that these games are embedded in this context where people, instead of stepping outside once they're done playing the game into an actual embodied neighborhood community, there's nothing to be found there. And so it's moving from Call of Duty to, say, 4chan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, I, I mean, this, yes, but, but also I mean this in a much more – that, that alienation is true, but also I want to be very clear about this. Like abuse of physical abu- and emotional abuse of women <laughs> – is a much bigger predictive flag of this type of violence. It's almost ubiquitous among young men who do who go on to be mass shooters, right? There's very little accountability or response to it. 
I'll give another example. Adam Lanza, like there were red, drawing guns in school, like love to, to play violent video games, design Doom levels, all that shit. Literally, a friend of his mother, of Nancy, told the police that four years before Sandy Hook, that at, and this is, I read this in a document dump, I'm not making this up, it's an FBI, the FBI has files on this, told authorities, Adam Lanza has access to an assault rifle and is going to use it to shoot up Sandy Hook Elementary School. The police did nothing because those guns belong to Nancy, right? So what I'm saying here is that, sure, this part, like the guns in these games are part of the imaginative surround, but the, but there's actual physical harm that is so much more obvious and ignored, such that thinking about that as a precipitating factor when like. I don't know, like the fact that this the young man who was the shooter in Uvalde apparently was had like a, a long history of threatening to rape young girls and nothing was done about it seems to me to be more dispositive and more of an urgent problem. What do you make of mass shootings having taken on this meme-like quality whereby it seems like shooters are following a script, a script that gets rewritten over time, but a script that was first written in some ways at Columbine? Here's 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 a way that, to think about it, and I was talking about this with with a student and and uh, a veteran uh, friend as well. It was very very striking how in the early era of the war on terror, you would come across these explanations for suicide bombing as a pathological act of nihilism. You may recall a lot of this stuff that was peddled, right? And oftentimes it would be explained in terms of these kind of half baked reading of hadith, where it was like under Islam, and I'm parroting this, I'm not advocating this, like, there is the, the like, the, the, the Dharma al-Haraj or whatever, like, there's, there's the world of peace of Islam, like the Ummah, and then there's the world of war. And these two worlds are forever, like, in, in, in opposition to one another. And, like, the Ghazi is the holy warrior, is the one who crosses that boundary and wages war. And I'm like, you know, honestly, like, I think my understanding from my friends who are Arabists and scholars of Islam is, is that that's, first off, bullshit, but second of all, is a pretty canny, pretty Projection of, you know, like this fascist war on terror and the thin blue line stuff, right? That was right there, right? But but on the topic of of suicide bombings, specifically nihilist activity, there was like this statement that, well, these are these are people who have no purpose other than to sow chaos. They have no purpose other than to destroy themselves. It's, it's an act driven by hate. And hate is a concept, of course, that can liquefy all sorts of politics or, or, or complex material forces. And it Having done uh, again, probably more reading than I should have, or than I should uh, for for my well-being about like the ethnographies of suicide bombers or psychological profiles, etc. You one would learn, though one didn't hear this in the first years of the war on terror, that actually there are plentiful social motivations. Now I'm not endorsing any of this activity, but there are things like payouts to families, right? Social safety nets for survivors of uh, families where someone becomes a suicide bomber, or even a lot of social pressure in some cases, particularly in, in the case of Palestine, where um, people, this, this has been documented by IDF anthropologists, but be that as it may, like where there's a, the turn to committing a suicide bombing can be a way of like expiating family guilt or perceived family stigma. Like, for example, let's say you have an uncle or something who has been accused of collaborating with the IDF, right? Or you're an unmarriable young man or a widow and you have to, thus it becomes a situation where, in other words, even in this act of horrific violence and political desperation, and I'm not talking normally, I'm just describing it here, there is a logic of a tie to the socius, Right. There are material and ideological factors that appear to sanction that and make it thinkable and make it a thing. Right. Like you pose for the martyrdom photographs, like, et cetera. 
One thing that I have noticed as being, yet we call this nihilistic as though it had no meaning and no social component whatsoever. One thing I have noticed about this, about mass shooters of this, this young man type here, whether they be of the white supremacist bent or the incel bent or the type who we never know what they were thinking because they blow their own heads off, is that the communities that they seek to impress, even as they kind of do meme and worship them, are also incredibly contemptuous assholes about them. This is, I know this is, this sounds vague, but, but like within the minutes after Uvalde, you could read on 4chan, or rather read on the Discord chats that were made available, people calling, people who had egged him onto this or who were new of his plans, calling him a loser because he did not target other people. Or in the case of Buffalo, people like, why didn't he attack an abortion clinic instead? In other words, there's like a pervasive type of negativity that feels profoundly nihilistic in a way that is, there's no, there's no social insurance mechanism. There appears to be a kind of like a, a solitude and a solipsism to that act. Even as it's repeated, there not only is there no afterlife, but the people who you might think would celebrate you or benefit from your act, literally like meme pissing on your grave even after you do it. And that, I think, to me is... That's not just inexplicable, but that, I think, indexes certain types of alienation that are really, really rotten. It's hard for me to figure out how to neatly classify or distinguish these mass shooting events. Both the Buffalo and Evalde massacres fit into the gun problem category, but while massacres like the one in Buffalo fall into the political category of far-right racism, the Evalde massacre does not because the shooter did not have a properly political motivation. But but does that distinction really hold up if both are linked to the same sick currents running through American society right now? Are they not all in some way fundamentally political? And even beyond that, beyond the ideas in a particular shooter's head, the whole logic of these shootings tends to have a pretty obviously reactionary and antisocial direction, even their targets, schools, one of the more democratic institutions in American society, that seems to evince a reactionary impulse. Is there a hard distinction between political mass murders and those without clear ideological motivation? You know, I think we can we can be ambivalent about this and think about it in two ways at once, right, productively, right? Like, on the one hand... Yes, there are obviously mass murders that are stated as part of a political program, like the like like the that fucker in Buffalo being like basically self-identifying as a white supremacist and wearing wearing like a Aryan symbolism and all that shit, right? Like, like neo modeled off the far right guy in New Zealand who himself, if I recall correctly, was modeled off of Brevik. Yeah, exactly. Rocking the whole like great replacement neo crusader, all that bullshit, like imagined community stuff, right? And yes, clearly they state their motivation. And as I've pointed out elsewhere, they state that motivation. Well, like, how do I put this? Like, yes, it's political in the sense that it describes itself in political, but also like it's an 18 year old pissant kids manifesto and talking about demographics and like physiognomy and a whole bunch of memes and genetics and shit. It's just like they're written at the level of a shitty freshman paper that is, you know, would get an F if, if you were to be grading it. Right. And half of them are plagiarized. Like it's political. Yes. In the sense that it has certain political tropes, et cetera, but it's not like there's a, a, 
it's not a manifesto the way like I don't know like the Communist Manifesto or like like something by Schiller is it's it's not a manifesto in the in the sense of it having any literary or political depth right all these I've read so many of these things they're really basically the same regurgitated tired pasty shit right so I think we should just let's stipulate that. At the same time, though, it's hard to imagine anything more political than going into a public space and declaring, like, we're going to kill people. I'm going to kill people of a particular sort. Watch me do it. Right. So that's obviously political. And it's part of a broader political gestalt that includes um, more polite people with blood on their hands that are removed, advocating political programs that are normalized and treated as very acceptable in American society. And I think here about the El Paso shooting and how in 2019, just a couple months before it, none other than David Frum had an Atlantic cover article that ran the question with how much immigration is too much. And the subheading was if liberals don't enforce the border or don't enforce uh, immigration fascists will. Essentially, it was a more sophisticated, great great replacement, hard borders theory. And again, not drawing a monocausal line to uh, that asshole who shot up the Walmart in El Paso, but like to the extent to which these are fetid reflections of stuff that's happening in, in more mainstream spaces, it's certainly political in that way. More broadly, though, I think, and this gets at the, and, and, and we should also say too, that, that the whether or not it's like abstractly political judged by us as gatekeepers or observers on the outside, when you have a situation like El Paso where Latinx people who were wounded quite possibly didn't seek medical care or um, African-Americans uh, in Buffalo might not be – like black people in Buffalo might be scared to go to the store in the middle of a food desert as a result. Like they got the message as a political – like the raw political statement of ethnic eliminationism. That's political on the face of it. But more generally, and this gets it at your question of like the politics of nihilism and the politics of differentiating between other things. If murdering other, if murdering another human being isn't a fundamentally politically salient act, I have no idea what else could be. And this gets at the broader structures, the precipitating structures of political economy, uh, libidinal economy, or what we could call necropolitics that are at play here that perpetuate and underwrite all these shootings, right? Young men or men in crisis picking up weapons and seeking to vindicate their grievances by doing murder in public strikes at the socius. Yes, it erodes confidence in public space. But also, it is an expression of an entitlement to dispose of other human beings as objects and to wield violence as a way to express agency and power and satisfy grievances that is also present in a whole suite of other behaviors, above all in, in, in femicide, in domestic abuse, in sexual abuse, in the broader structure of what theorists might call like chiriarchy, like a whole system of domination. Right. So I think that we can think about, in the case of mass shootings in particular, too, these high profile events as expressing in a public and, yes, exceptional, statistically speaking way, broader calculi and hierarchies of human disposability that are baked into our political system, normalized and not treated as being newsworthy and which happen every day. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books. The Socialism Conference is back. 
The largest socialism conference in North America returns this September 2nd through 5th in Chicago, and registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists for four days of discussion and debate about radical politics, history, and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures, and workshops on class struggle unionism, police and prison abolition, black feminism, reproductive justice, working class internationalism, capitalist crisis, tenant organizing, Palestinian liberation, and more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Aliyah, Derricka Purnell, Femi Taiwo, Kim Kelly, Muhammad El-Kurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. I will also be at the Socialism Conference recording a live episode of The Dig. I don't know about what or with whom, but it's going to be great and I hope to see you there. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register before July 8th for the early bird discount. I know I'm going to get in trouble with any sort of gun nut listener for any way that I attempt to describe guns here, but what what many people think of as military-style weapons became mainstream like never before after the 2004 expiration of the assault weapons ban. So this liberal gun ban made assault weapons, made these guns all the more alluring. And then similarly, there's this this pattern of gun purchases surging after mass shootings. And that's ostensibly about gun enthusiasts panicking, quite erroneously, that any given mass shooting will be followed by some sort of restriction on guns, which does not happen. But I feel like there's something deeper going on. There's there's this identity of gun owner that has emerged in recent decades. And, and it's complicated because, as we've discussed, Americans have been armed and dangerous from the get-go and even before they were Americans. And yet gun owners have really undergone this dramatic process of radicalization against any form of gun regulation whatsoever, combined with a process of radicalization in terms of what kind of firearms that gun owners want to shoot and own, and also in terms of just the overall worldview entailed by being a gun owner, which is really a process of identity formation, of gun owners sort of moving from becoming a class in itself to a class for itself. What is this identity? How did it come about? And what is its role today on the American right? If you ask people to self-identify as gun owners, and that's like one of the first things that they self-identify as, then, you know, statistically speaking, they're going to be voting on the right, right? (laughs) They're going to be conservative. They're going to be associated with, uh, you know, they're going to be registered Republicans or independents who who lean right. Um, And they're more likely than not to be white men, right? That's like an empirical, there's data on this. And in some ways, actually, recent decades of past two in particular have seen this this, this, uh, trajectory such that ownership of guns, or more specifically, the willingness to identify as a gun owner, right, is a, is a leading predictor of other political dispositions, specifically, you know, uh, rightward orientation. I do think, though, that like, it's worth thinking about with that in mind, like, it is kind of striking that the phrase gun owner as an identity category, right, owned emically, but also one that people want to interrogate ethically, is a, it's one of those few identities that you can buy, Right in which a consumption of an object or the uh, 
well, consumption is a complicated term there, but like purchasing something makes you a thing, right? You don't have like um, jet ski owners or I, I don't even like like people who own sex swings, like identify like, do you know, if you follow me, like that's not a legible immediately given category where you're like, well, yeah, this is how I, I mean my, my other people as a XY owner. I see like it's you could be like a classic car enthusiast, but in a way, the term gun owner suggests gun enthusiast. Yeah, it it, uh, it definitely suggests some sort of jouissance in terms of a relation to it. Uh, but yeah, like it is, I mean, it's, I think, I don't, I don't recall if early in our conversation we talked about Blue Lives Matter type ideology, but that's another sort of, like, I think those are cognate or similar types of formations, right? Where it's like police officer or first responder is a job that you have, that you choose to have, which can then enjoy not just a protection from, in some states, from like hate, li- hate crime, like, you know, protected status, like, but also all of these protections, gun owners like this too, right? That's a thing you can buy that then stands in for a whole assemblage of other politics. I think that's probably the way to understand it as a way when people self-identify as gun owners, gun owners as a primary means of identifying themselves as, as part of right-wing social and political America, that is placing themselves as sort of adjacent to and in alliance with sort of the armed forces of the state, <laughs> probably. I mean, you could you, you could probably make some, I mean, for the purposes, again, of like a discussion that we're having within a, within like the ambit of the left to attempt to understand this, this, this like other, I think like if there is a monolithic block of, uh, uh, if, if we, and this is crude, but if there is a monolithic block of like gun owners who's, who's, uh, we, whose ideology we want to unpack in that phrase, we can see that as being an entire politics that's about the gun. Right. And the politics of centers around the gun um, or the gun is like it, it's paradoxical. Right. In a way that the blue line is also a kind of paradoxical thing where it's both the limit case, but also the thing that makes possible the whole system. Right. Like the gun in, in a lot of accounts and a lot of like the narratives you get both about how the state is formed, but also the circumstances in which the individual needs the gun is both the thing that like you you have to have when the state fails. Right. When there's a burglar coming through your window, when the police are always 20 minutes too late. But also they're the things that, you know, you had the state has to protect. Like it's a, there's a whole series of aporias and contradictions there that are resident in this. And they all come down to basically building a politics around the limit case of the failure of politics or on politics of basic act of exclusion and violence. At the same time, of course, the, the martial culture of paramilitary politics is not just the domain of a white supremacist right wing, although I think that is probably the majority of that culture at the moment. It's also historically been taken up by many in the black freedom struggle from the American Civil War and Reconstruction to various efforts at self-defense and at the height of the black power movement, even organized political militias. And we've seen small arms violence both used to repress rural labor struggles in the history of this country, but also used to defend them. What should we think about gun culture on the left? It has a rich history, but there are no doubt costs and consequences to adopting a martial stance on the field of politics, even even in self-defense. Historically speaking, like the, the mounting insurgent violence against a hegemonic order is oftentimes a type of... Um, is a trajectory that comes with risks and that can end in revolutionary suicide or being killed, right? That's like a thing I think that people are very honest about. And and, and I think that's a thing that's worth bearing in mind. And I think it's also worth saying too, that like it's a consistent vector of state subversion and of state targeting. And this is, I'm not 
speaking uh, out of turn here. Like this is how, for example, one of the ways that the, that the Jaguar's FBI went after the Panthers specifically is by going after militant groups for arms sales. Right. For for getting unlicensed weapons, for having weapons that they shouldn't. This is one good way to, you know, it's, it's a point at which, like, it, particularly if you're uh, an insurgent group that's working sort of off the grid and is trying to acquire weapons either that are of not, you know, of, of a pre- legally restricted category, like fully automatic weapons, or you just don't want records of these things being bought. Like, that's a point in which you come into contact with not just like a criminal underworld, but, you know, a, a potential world of informants and people who are working for the police or who are police themselves, etc. So there are like all these risks there. And then there's also like the actuarial risk of the fact that any place in which there are tons of guns, like, uh, let's just like the gun death becomes a non-zero possibility at the point at which a gun is in play. Right. Like this is as simple as saying that like you're not going to die in a car accident unless there's a car around. But like there is some point at which like the gun being there becomes a thing that it, it can potentiate events. There's a reason that they say the gun on the mantelpiece as the primary example of uh, foreshadowing in a play. Yeah, it's it's a Chekhov's gun principle. Right. I mean, but like this is and this is part of what I, I think is, is worth thinking about here, too, is that it, by my lights to whatever those are worth. One thing that's striking about the the history of of left wing and insurrectionary insurgent separatist movements right is that on the one hand yeah a lot of them do end terribly a lot of them also are are targeted by the state but like i do think it's worth saying that at the point at which like the gun becomes the organizing principle and the object around which the politics are built that you're um you're not only courting that potentially like baptism and death by fire right that like living by the gun guy by by the gun bullshit but also you're kind of neglecting the other aspects of what i think would make any insurgent revolutionary left-wing program worth like contemplating which is namely an ethos of community care and uplift and other practices and other objects and other ways of like relating that are not just about guns right that are not just about the limit case scenario of being attacked by the state that are about you know like food programs, right? Or, um, you know, like uh, plowshares, we want to be biblical about it, right? But I think that there is some point at which like, and this is worth talking about, but it's a difficult thing to talk about that people think there are a lot of people in this country of a variety of political persuasions, but I've encountered leftists who do this. And I, I, it always kind of troubles me who seem to think that it's like simply having the gun and going into the woods with a bunch of people. And like, this is what we're going to do with our guns. And here's how, here's the gun I want. And this is how you shoot this gun. Like the, if that's the entirety of the ministry, right. I think I just take that as, as a kind of like tragic it, in some ways is it, at the very least is risking a tragic mirroring of the hegemonic logic of like, well, it's just you and the gun and you're the, you're going to make things happen. And that doesn't, you know, there's a reason a lot of those movements fall apart because of femicide or suicide or infiltration. And and it's you have to have a community to defend in addition to just organizing around like a purely reactive notion of defense. Yeah, there are all those risks or even arguably eventualities that you detail there. And those need to be taken all the more seriously if there is no practical path for armed revolution succeeding in the United States, which I would contend is obvious. I mean, it it is obvious, but it's also like there's this tragedy here where it's like, I think holistic alternatives to the state or some sort of path forward or some sort of change is actually not that obvious, or at least it's not as obvious and at hand as breaking things, killing things or buying a gun. Right. And I think to the extent to which and here I think about all these people who may not be very political, right, who don't identify as gun owners, but who are like, you know, they have to 
deal with um, abusive partners who, you know, they're terrified of and who the, who maybe maybe one of them's a cop, right? And they can't count on the state to protect them and they know the risk, but they're going to buy a gun anyways because that's like their choice. Or people who are buying guns because, you know, they're um, afraid of, of, of their neighbors and where they live. Like on some level, the, those are, without reducing it or simplifying it, those gestures bespeak a desperation and a lack of other options combined with an ease of access and a facilitation of certain options as being imaginable. And I think that, you know, like a cohesive mutual aid system is a lot, it's a lot sex, it's a lot less sexy, right? To use a loaded term, it's a lot less at hand to use a a resonant term. It's a lot less commodifiable and like easily put on, you know, Instagram profiles or badass posters than just toting some gun. And, and that's, that's really hard, right? I think I think one thing, one way to maybe frame this is that negativity is much easier to both imagine and enact than doing something constructive or positive. Which isn't to say that those two things are necessarily opposed, right? Like, it's I, I mentioned I use the example of lunch programs in particular because like that's one of those those legacy programs of the Panthers, right? And that, that is one of that was for them alongside I think for at least for many of them alongside their uh, their other advocacy. But you know, it's worth noting that a lot of them being shot to death and not just by the police. But the negative vibes are indeed really powerful ones right now. And a lot of people are invoking this notion that America is attempting to commit suicide or in more straightforwardly Freudian terms, whether people know the Freudian theory behind it, that America has a strong death drive, all amidst this commitment to doing next to nothing in terms of what needs to be done to forestall climate catastrophe, the pandemic. I feel like these recent shootings have just punctuated this longstanding sense, particularly since the beginning of the pandemic, that this country is dedicated to self-destruction. And you've written a lot on this. What did Freud mean by the death drive? How might that concept help us help us understand this country's increasingly bleak social political reality and people's societies, the states, kind of everything's commitment to doubling down on that bleak social and political reality? There are a lot of interpretations of what Freud meant when he talked about this thing, you know, the toast street, like the death drive. Um, there is a way in which it's not entirely clear what he meant, and he's very contradictory about it. And uh, part of what makes this such a recurrent and fertilely like generative concept for a lot of subsequent theorists, psychoanalytic and otherwise, in, in Freud's wake, uh, is the way in which it's, it's a concept that can do a lot of work and that can mean a lot of things. Some of them very, very ugly and scary, and others possibly even liberatory and, and weird. Uh, in a, in a kind of different way, but like to 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 contest to again to historicize and define the term within the context of the Freudian sort of like output, it's a concept he sort of articulates in the wake or simultaneous to the end of the First World War, right? And as he attempts to in this book, which people can yeah, you know, I encourage people to read. It's a very strange little book, but uh, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, which is two which is two books at once, sort of like this is how I would read it, right? The first bit is an account of him having to clinically and uh, therapeutically encounter people who are suffering from what, to use the terminology of the contemporary present, we, we would call like PTSD, right? People who are who appear to be haunted in in a very real way by these repetitive, unbidden memories or 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 or, or memories even difficult word because like it's a disassociated memory right memory sometimes implies a cohesion but these the way in which certain types of events that are near death or whether for themselves or for those around them that these memories keep coming back. These are people who are quote unquote shell shocked from World War One, right? 
Yeah. And these are people who challenge Freud's theories of both pathology and and of like psychology more generally of how the human mind is built insofar as that they appear to be kind of stuck, right, on this episode, on this one episode, right, or on this on, on some sort of moment. And, and that a lot of the symptoms that Freud would otherwise have seen in people who we would call as suffering from hysterical neuroses or who we would now call as having like conversion disorders resemble those symptoms, right? They're having fainting spells, they're seeing things that aren't there, they're losing the ability to speak, they're developing sort of blindness, even when there is no nerve damage to their op- to like their optic nerves, etc. But, uh, you know, in the context of, of, of <laughs> the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Prussian state in like 1918, uh, you don't get like ushered to the fainting couch and accommodated. You have a, a, a another you have an officer be telling you to pick up a gun and, and to throw a grenade or not and you get shot. And these people will get shot. They're not faking it. They're not malingering, right? They're problems which are psychic in nature, right? To the extent to which they don't have like a clearly definable organic cause, nonetheless are real enough that it causes them to die. It produces, it causes them to be killed and causes them to have like remarkably uh, tragic life trajectories thereafter, right? And and where Freud goes from this is basically to produce this very complicated vision and, and contradictory vision of like, of how the mind relates to negative stimuli or to overwhelming negative stimuli. And he mythologizes this into starting to think about like a a countervailing or countervailing principle to the desire to create, to build, to reproduce, to create the new, right? What otherwise would be called like a libido theory, right? A desire towards, rather a drive to attach, to reproduce, etc. Like this is very, this sounds weird, but like it's also like the, I should say, like, this is the most, it starts in a clinical space, but it goes towards philosophical, existential, properly, like, almost theological stakes. Like, this is the close, as, psych- as psychoanalysis gets to what you might call an apophasis, which is like a limp, like a, the language of, language to talk about things where language itself fail. But, like, what he basically argues from this is, is this kind of complicated, this idea that events, things can befall the human mind such that the human mind can be, or the human person, rather, could be so st- stuck but also like so like continually returning in this movement towards the past, this continual like return of the repressed past in a way that's destructive, but that also produces a disruption in the future and a kind of stasis in the present, produces this kind of conceptual con- uh, constellation that other people use to talk about things like social inertia, about the appeal uh, uh, of suicide under certain conditions or the fetish of, fetishes of violence. I think it's pretty fucking useful for thinking about trajectories of like continually maintaining borders, conceptual and otherwise, over to the point at which things within the thing that's being preserved are actually destroyed. The ex- ways in which extensions or projections of self or desires to exert power actually produce a weakening within and an ultimate like turn back into a destruction of the self. Right. You can think about this in terms of like an autoimmunity function or the way in which like guns are super cool prostheses for extending our power. Right. You can shoot things that are very far away and they're fun as hell. But also they seem almost inevitably in many cases to be used on the people who are initially using them for the purposes of exerting force and projecting power. Right. And I think whether it be describing something as granular as that or the way in which an entire socius, if we want to think about a, a polity and people of civilization as in, in the mythic terms of that little organism, I think you can look at a lot of the things that we do. And I hear I mean like late capitalist humans in the center of our like gerontocratic, like fellow petrocracy or whatever you want to call it, right? Like we're literally driving around in these cars that are fueled by the liquid 
remains of previous mass extinctions and in so doing are crashing into one another, dying really quickly, but also boiling the world and producing probably the next great extinction. There is a tragic drama and a legibility, what you could call a thanatotelic trajectory, i.e. like a drivenness towards death in the way in which like the non-negotiability of our comfort and this desire for an, to to maintain a nostalgic past or to bring back a past of comfort, a way a thing a, a horizon of things being comfortable and understandable and predictable, actually produces not just death in the present, but increasingly commits us to a kind of self destruction that's also destruction of the other. To, to gloss it very simply, one way to understand, and this is one of Freud's basic definitions of it, like the death drive is a situation in which the organism will seek nothing more centrally than the capacity and the prerogative to die on its own terms. I think that that does work for thinking of everything from the like from my cold dead hands, which is both a threat and also a suicide vow when it comes to guns in many cases, to the like uh, the Rumsfeldian era, Bush era stuff like the American way of life is non-negotiable. Right. I think we're we're wedded to comfort and and the idea of doing things that might disrupt that comfort or that might challenge that comfort is more is experienced as more existentially threatening and is less imaginable uh, than the sort of disavowed and widely understood inevitability of that if we don't change, we're all going to die. There's this intense focus on comfort, but it's almost comfort within quotations because we don't really enjoy it. We never get to enjoy the Club Med or cruise ship all you can drink bracelet because we're always already hungover. We hate it, but we're non-negotiably committed to the misery in this desire to return to some mythic normal even if the attempt to do so is is killing us can we see the death drive operating not only on the frothing maga far right but also among the shell-shocked this is not normal follow the science center left and if it does indeed pervade the broader body politic beyond the right why is it that the magified republican party has found itself to be so talented at tapping into these sick and violent vibes coursing through the country. Yeah, I think so, so to move from the from the latter question to the former one, right? There is some way in which when you deal with the right, they're Whitmanesque in their ability to contain multitudes and to like traverse contradiction. Like, so I contradict myself, then I contradict myself, right? And and, and that particular way in which like self-destruction and aggression towards others are sort of like fungibly in this in that, like interchangeable in this churn is very much present in that. And that's what we could call that dialectic of negativity that you're talking about. Right. And I'm thinking about it, like some of the, the Trump rallies I've attended and covered and stuff like where it's like, we're miserable, but at least we can like participate in having this one guy who who's up there on this podium, literally making fun of how we look and telling us that we're all like toilets and stuff, but at least he makes these other people even more mad and we can get off on their misery. Right. So it's like it's it's like the, it's like a negative collective effervescence of at least we can say fuck them. Right. This is one of these like the bare things, one of the cruelest things about this comfort, right? It's this American sort of like situation where everyone seems to think that there's like this basic truth that someone else is getting away with something. You've been denied the thing. And you've been denied the thing because of some other person who is proximate and who is nearer to you. And at least you can die knowing that they were more miserable than you and you were able to get some sort of marginal difference of your contempt out of their disposability out, right? It's the same way in which like I can think like, you know, I've met people like this. I've talked to people like this who's like, 
whose vision of like their self-assertion in the end of the day, like what, as their world constricts and things, healthcare and other options fail them. It's like, well, you know, at least I can shoot someone before they burglar my house. Right. Like it's like, at least it's, it's pure negativity. Right. And I think that that's the right is it taps into that in some way. Right. It, it can tap both the libidinal landscape of that. And it, 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 they deploy this imaginary in a way that is um, that like they've, internalize the postmodern maximum of like the, the, the floating of this, of the, the mutability of the signifier and all this. They're like, fuck it, they'll say anything because it's about artifices and power and language that comes afterwards. The relationship of like the liberal center to this is, um, is a little more complicated because it involves this sort of appeal to a third or like this kind of like self-abdicating relation to pleasure where the pleasure is like, well, we're not, for them, the cruelty is the point. For us, the process even though it's cruel, and even though we hate the process, the process is the point. The center wants to just will the superego back into being in American politics. Yeah, yeah, and it, or it sort of, sort of performs the superego, this writing concept of like it's the internalized conscience and authority figures from otherwise, right? It's, 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 the, it's the dad at the head of the table, it's the teacher at the head of the class, it's the, it's the judges of history. It's some sort of like rever- reverenced authority figure who you can't, who you identify with through sort of like your own self-abnegation. It's like, well, you know, all these Trumpites, they're, they're, they're gross clowns. Like, look at all that. Look at the ways they contradict themselves. Look how horribly they revel in cruelty. But we, us, we talk about what's realistically possible. That's why we need to make deals with these people, because we need to actually keep the, the center, keep, even as the center keeps moving, the center, we got to hold it somehow, right? And, and it's, it's worth saying that a lot of this also involves a logic of passivity and a type of satisfaction, right? And, and I think here about like these statements about, about the way like belief statements or like these kind of formulaic actions like voting are taken to stand in for an entire politics in this way where it's like, well, if we just do these right things, if we say these right things, as opposed to any type of structural engagement or even seeing our opponents for what they are, then things will get better somehow. Like the, the, our purity of heart will combine with our purity of intention and our ability to regulate our neighbors, always the left, because they're more, they're supposedly like, they're the ones who are more misguided from this perspective. Then things will turn out okay, right? And, and I think it's worth saying here too, like think about like the work done by like these signsies. I see them all over my fucking neighborhood here in Pennsylvania where it's like, we believe in science. Right. And, and like we believe Black Lives Matter and that love is love. All right. I mean, they put these signs out. Those signs are, yes, less fuck you than the people who are like Trump 2024 and let's go Brandon and Trump really won and all that shit. Right. And they, you know, they don't have the like we don't call 911 with like we support our police like that. Like, you know, yes, it's a much more it's a much more colorful, pretty sign. But what the fuck does it mean? Like at the end of the day, a lot of these people are still voting, you know, to maintain the character of the neighborhood and the beautiful facades of their building. They're doing all that NIMBY shit, right? They don't want high, high density housing. But also, like, what the fuck does it mean to say that you believe in science? But there is this kind of element to it that I, and this I think is, is, is another thing that's worth saying. It's tragic and hard, but where all this goes, what this also implies is a tremendous energy devoted to forgetting, right? A, a tremendous energy voted to talking about how, well, fuck, Nancy Pelosi does this. Like, she just did this, right? We need a, where are the strong Republicans of yore? The decent Republicans of yore, right? Or think here about, this is what the liberal commentariat does. Think about how every couple of years, you get some some, some latest, like, ghoulish motherfucker, whether it, it, it be like, um, fucking like Rod Dreher, 
or um, even that that sort of uh, man-child of perpetually uh, ben, ben Shapiro, right? Who gets who gets pitched by the by some liberal publications like this is the face of conservative intellectualism, right? These are the beautiful plangent cries of, of Rod Dreher, right? Expressing the or J.D. Vance, he's such a whisperer for the for for, for the forgotten voices of the heartland, right? The, all these kind of apostrophizing things, and, and you read it and you're like, okay, well, who's this for? Why are you doing this? But then a couple of years later, you go back and read it. After those same people have been like, wow, it sounds like J.D. Vance is really into like, you know, basically just doing the 14 words over and over again. Or it's pretty crazy how Rod Dreher has recently said all these things about trans people. Or look at all these like horrible racist cartoons that Ben Shapiro is running on his website. And, and, and the answer is always like motherfuckers. They were always that. Yeah. I mean, th- who, who are they doing it for? They're doing it. Who are they doing it for? They're doing it for themselves because if there's no reason- reasonable right, then their own centrist politics don't make any sense. That's exactly right. It's about a continual, betrays the fact that ultimately they have much more in common in terms of a common vocabulary and also shared material interests with these right wing figures. But also that like what they're getting out of this is the satisfaction of being the gatekeeper, of being the ones who are like looking over the deck chairs being arranged on the, on, on the deck of the Titanic and being like, this is fine. This is the process. It'll sort itself out. There's this kind of view like Kafka has a parable, right? Where it's a parable about parables where someone comes to like an old man and is like, well, what's the, what's, what's the deal with parables? Like, and someone says, well, you know, if, if we just become parables, then we will be rid of all our daily cares. And, you know, that's the, of course, you can't become a parable, but there is some point at which, like, I feel like a lot of these, comment, these commentators are like, well, if we just continually be the ones who are anointing the face of right-wing respectability, if we're continually in this position of maintaining the machine of like holding this non-existent center, then we'll always be there. They'll always need us, right? We're going to live forever in the realm of takes. We're going to become takes ourselves. And that's to the extent to which that one sacrifices vulnerable people, always, right? That's always the thing. Well, let's just, let's just seed ground on cultural war issues. Let's just give them trans kids. It never goes anywhere, right? If, if we just give them trans kids, then they won't come for row. Well, guess what? They're going to both take the trans kids and they're going to go for row. But there is this way in which like, they seem to like, also seem to think that they are floating above these transactions of power. Now, whether they, know, whether they actually think that or they're cynical, and I think you could find a whole lot of people in those, who, who run that gamut, there seems to be this kind of thing that like, well, if we just hold still to the formalities, the pure formalism of yore, if we just publicly deny pleasure to ourselves in this for the sake of principle, even as we have no principles, then at least we'll survive this. And that's that's how democracies die, too. What's the political economy of this death drive? Do do people sense, even if they can't quite articulate it, or maybe they do articulate it, that we're that we're in this period where capitalism seemingly can't or won't make anything new and useful and that all the new frontiers of profit are just in ever more abstract financial maneuvers that have reached their apotheosis in, in crypto, even as we are driving inexorably towards climate catastrophe. Is this is there a material foundation for these bad vibes? I think it's it's an interesting question because for me, I think you actually can. I, I think in any account, like a Marxist political uh, like economic perspective is completely compatible with a psychoanalytic perspective about libid- like li- you can't have a libidinal economy without 
political economy, right? You, for the simple reason that, like, you know, people are attached to circumstances of their own oppression, right? That, like, or 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 to 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 to, to think about that that the old phrase that Thomas Frank was like going at in this earlier era, or was like, what's the, what's the matter with Kansas? Like, what's up with this false consciousness? And the answer is, well, there's pleasure. But like, if I can go back to Du Bois saying this too, right? There's a pleasure in racism for racists, right? Um, to think about like the the motive satisfaction and the way in which like libidinal satisfaction is can actually make people lead people to make material decisions and, and have material impacts. That's worth thinking about, right? And the point at which like, you know, like completely fictive financial products are being like mined. I, I've seen this bit where they're putting Bitcoin mining facilities directly atop oil wells, right? They're just like burning the fuel. It, it just, it's, it's absurd, right? Uh, but like, I do think that there's this thing about capitalism in, in its contemporary form, but also in the way in which it's always sort of been articulated, you know, in its earlier, you know, mercantilist and, and, and transatlantic incarnations. It's that you don't, death is both incredibly monetizable and life is so cheap, but the nature of like the capitalist imaginary and the desire to expand and increase doesn't allow for, at least encourages people not to think about their own deaths, right? Capital is, capital like Cthulhu lives forever. And it's deathless in that way that only like the undead thing can be. And I think about like the, when you think about like the, what passes for the fantasies or like the life projects of some of our supposedly greatest innovators and like our most successful people, I think you're on Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, those motherfuckers, right? It's primal father stuff, right? So I'm going to go to space with my winnings. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to freeze my brain and my dick. That's a Jeffrey Epstein vector, right? It's like, we're going to do what we're going to unlimited pleasure beyond the pale of this, you know, veil of tears, which at the end of the day, is just like primitive accumulation, primal father shit. Like there's no, what does it mean about a system that generates so much riches, but which even the people who are successful in it are so morally, intellectually, and imaginatively impoverished? People are always so shocked when the person who is like, has everything and has all the power and money in the world also turns out to be just like, like can't get their hands off the people around them and is a serial sexual harasser or whatever. It's like, wow, like you actually can't sublimate shit. Like you're at the top of the pyramid and you're still do like, there's no... There's no transformation of like the human in this. There's no like heightened degree of relationality. There's no depth or again, like awareness of fragility or empathy that might come from being aware that you are a finite being who's going to die. Instead, it's immortality projects and a ton of rape. And it's like, it's crazy, right? And I don't mean crazy in like a stigmatizing way. I mean, like it's madness, right? And it's madness as like an output of a particular type of reason, right? It's the madness of economic reason, but it's also the madness of a type of primitive accumulation in this neo-techno-feudal mode. It's heartbreaking. I, I, I don't I don't know what like the outside of it is or how to deal with it. Though, I mean, Freud does say that, you know, he does have some parables about how the primal father gets dealt with, right? <laughs> like there, there, there are some outcomes there you can consider, but there is a way in which like, it is also clearly terminal, and all these products are so derivative. And, and, and we ask, like, what are they, these people making? And the answer is, well, they're making just more, they're making either notional abstractions or things that will allow you to, like, hyperloop more away from other people or, like, put the car on AI. Or in other ways, like, to, to, to increase this type of monadized false self idea. But the real deal with it just seems to be that, like, their whole job is to is to launder into abstraction and into baubles of cheap pleasure, ever increasing misery, right? To, to, to mystify widespread, like precarity into 
something that is good because you could have it or maybe you could have it for a little while. And I feel like that's also kind of a lot of this is a, a dark mirror of like the what we were talking about, like that lanyard class stuff earlier. Right. Like things think about all the, the ways in which like there's this kind of like democracy is good because you have more choices than ever, albeit for things that you can't afford. But, you know, you have choices uh, for candidates who don't you, you have to affirm those choices. Right. Even though they're, you know, the people you're voting for don't give a shit if you live or die. And uh, also capitalism is great because you could, you know, you can buy even more things that are built for planned obsolescence than ever. Like flat screen TVs are cheaper than ever. And so is this the political economic architecture of the American death drive? I think so. I think I think it's also to the extent to which like like and I'm with Freud and his hatred of America as like a quintessence of a type of capitalism, right? This odd combination of righteousness with sleaziness, of like pieties with a worship of money, with a with a with a perverse fixation on like a a family romance of manifest destiny combined with just complete indifference to anything of transcendent like like long term social value. But like it does feel like the I think what what I what I what, where I'm coming where I want to go with all this is like this way in which like and this is I think the other side of thinking about the death drive that can be liberatory and there are some thinkers who do this Lacan does this if you want to read him this way but like one way one thing that thinking about the death drive in political economic and liberal terms one thing that does for us is it allows us to think about waste as production the destruction of people not as externalities but also the production of all this garbage this wasteful stuff as being actually an output of energy that serves some sort of purpose. Right. And I think once you start thinking about that and that you consider that the person would be really terrible. Right. For me, like, I think like this is what the gunpowder stuff is also about doing. Like I'm trying to read the, the U.S. Uh, or the, this this current mess of institutions and uh, markets currently known as the U.S. as a giant machine for producing guns and bodies. Right. Like if you do that, you get a sense that actually all this stuff is radically contingent. Like it may weigh on us like the tradition of generations in this terrible way. Right. But it is like a whole lot of cultural production that's being squandered. Uh, that's being done, that's being wasted in repetition, that's being all deployed towards like uh, the naturalization of its own contingency is inevitable, even if that kills us all. I think once you can look at the contingency of that, even if you don't, you know, truck with any of these these theories in any sort of way beyond their, their functionalism and their utility for seeing that, then maybe that opens up something, right? Maybe you can ask for more. Maybe you can envision things being otherwise. But that, like, I think that there is, there is some way in which the very desperation and impoverishment of what passes for our uh, political, rather our libidinal, like political imaginary, but also like our libidinal economy, and the way in which, like, historically speaking, when people talk about how the foundations of our economy are so strong, they're really signaling that it's fucking built on nothing. That those are signs of desperation that you know point to the fact that maybe it maybe it could go differently, right? That's this is the vision of the death drive as being like a total severing of what came previously and a, and a rejection of all this falsely naturalized stuff as being natural and inevitable. There is no fucking reason why people who have you know more money than God should exist or why they should be viewed as somehow apexes of the human condition or of human perfection. Right. There is no reason why having an economy should require the, the sacrifice, like, whatever the fuck it means to have an economy. Right. To, should require the sacrifice of vast categories of workers. There is no reason why owning a gun is it should be should be a, a thing that like grants you security. And, you know, even if it means that at the end you get owned by the gun itself. Right. Like there's no reason for any of that shit. And I think that thinking about the diminishing returns of pleasure, but also the sheer desperation of that system can open up a new possibility. Low carbon leisure could make us so much happier, but we're committed to the consumption of certain sorts of 
manufactured petroleum products that we may very well throw away in not too long after we buy it. I think like a, a broaderly Freudian like vision of civilization here that might be helpful is just that, like a lot like look some like rules hierarchy maybe that's that's very necessary for some things right like Freud has some lines about this where he's like well you know you you teach kids not to like torture animals right you tell kids not to like randomly drop their pants in public like you got to do some things because we're all we all come we're all we're not Cartesian cogitos we're not behind the veil of ignorance we're not you know like brains in a vat despite the fever dream fantasies of people like Elon Musk like we're all differently abled and only abled temporarily at best and we're dependent upon one another in these things called families right which you know can change or whatever but they're still like we come into being in time we're mortal and finite because we have all these things, you probably need some structuring principles. You probably need to you need to protect people. You need to encourage certain types of behavior and discourage other types of behavior. I, I think there's a place for that. But then the uh, the corollary to that argument is that a lot of what is normalized as behavior, right? A lot of these relations that are naturalized, a lot of these relations to yourself, to your own body, to the bodies of others, right? To the idea of difference, etc., comes back in this super added way. In this, un, as like what what other theorists might call like a surplus repression, right? Like there's no reason why, I don't know. And, and I'll go back to that example that Freud gives of like like the regulation of what he calls infantile sexuality, right? Like telling your telling like your five year old that it's it, that they should put that away at the moment, right? That that's not something you do in public. That may be very necessary because you don't want your kid growing up to be I don't know fucking Louis C.K. or something, right? That may be necessary, but there's a super added element in which it then we we also have this these these bizarre prohibitions and disavowals such that we have to go the extra mile and talk about how teachers are actually teachers are actually all groomers and we have to you know like protect our kids from terrifying others who are outside, right? In other words, like a lot of the the, the constitutive bonds of civilization of all these trade-offs where like we do a little bit of repression, but then we always go, we take it a little too far, right? Or way too far. And it produces new conditions of suffering, right? Much in the same way as other people, like every artifact of civilization is also a sign of a certain type of transformed barbarousness. This idea that certain types of rep repression always has this other element of, of awfulness. The, to give another example, that may be helpful here. Like, uh, we have amazing technological developments like soap. <laughs> like we have hygiene, but we also have, I don't know, like as a symptom, people can like wash their hands until they bleed. And also we have, you know, people denying that there's the need to be masked, right? And we have to wonder like, well, maybe we can work through how we normalize like the relationship to hygiene or to contagion or to other things in ways that are both like ensuring that the public good and the individual flooring, but don't produce these morbid symptoms that are so horrible and cruel and demented. Although it, Although it's rare, after certain shootings, notably Parkland, I think, there's a new wave of activism that emerges. What sort of advice would you like your work to impart or at least suggest to that layer of young activists concerned with reducing gun violence? What, what sort of horizon do you think that they are or should be fighting for? I think for me... And what I would just like ask people to consider is that there is no, these terms that seem received, right? The terms in which you have to do, you have to deal with an issue, right? The fact that like the problem of social violence has to be segmented into gun violence and gun control, which means cops, or the way in which like talking about happiness and well-being 
becomes a conversation about what you can or can't say about mental illness and stigmatization, et cetera, like that a lot of these pitfalls and traps are discursive and they're not real in the world in the sense of being eternal, essential things. Like we talked earlier to begin with about how like the phrase gun control isn't in the fucking constitution and it doesn't really matter until the 50s or 60s. Second Amendment scholarship does not really show up until the 50s or 60s. Right. And yet now an entire and you have millions of Americans understanding themselves in relation to these concepts and terms. And on the one hand, that's um, that's depressing and sad. But on the other hand, that points to like, you know what, like if we want to be a little Gramscian about it, we could talk about as a hegemony of common sense. Right. Which can change. Certain terms become through political activism, through being rejected, through being interrogated, through being tested against emergent and changing political realities, no longer have to be the terms by which people describe situations, by which people intervene in situations, by which people understand themselves. And so for me, if I would ask anything, it's just like, try and not get exhausted by the terms that you're given or to see them, use them as the only way of looking at things, develop multiple vocabularies for talking about the same problems. Like you don't, you don't lose anything by look by be, by being ambivalent by being able to think two ways about the same concept or the same term or using multiple terms for the same concept or even real thinking that maybe a concept is actually multiple concepts those movements of like resisting immediate the immediate need to action in favor of like actually doing a little bit of reflection and considering that maybe you could produce your own vocabulary or you can like you know take in what you need and 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 leave what you don't and and continually revise that like to lean into the ambivalence of creation and to like create new things like that seems to me like it's precisely because i can't articulate concrete solutions and i can't, i won't articulate concrete solutions but that seems to me to be the sine qua non for any type of organizing or thinking and i think there are people who are doing who are leading into that one way or another whether it be an abolitionist sort of independent spaces or 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 or, or people who are thinking about gender in, in new ways but like that refusal to accept received terms simply because they're received and the willingness to create new ones and to test them seems absolutely essential for conceiving and making a new future. Well, Patrick Blanchfield, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, man. Patrick Blanchfield is a journalist, critic, and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. His book, Gunpower, The Structure of American Violence, is forthcoming from Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said in what Pat Blanchfield finds to be an excessively technologically determinist observation, gunpowder blew up the nightly class, while other podcasts only interpreted the world in various ways. Our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Tamuz Frankel. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling people you know to listen to the podcast. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. <laughs>